So, Russ, this week, you may notice, there's a little difference in the uh, beverage that I'm drinking. Yeah, Look at I've, that I've, fancy uh, glass. It's a fancy uh, brandy snifter, and I've got uh, my Remy Martin VSOP Cognac, and that is because we are talking about lots of Mozart this week. It's uh, so I felt like I had to kind of up the class level here, you know, just oh. to kind of feel feel Mozartian, you know. We're going first class this week. Yeah, well, we're close to first class. This is oh. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good cognac. It's not one of the the really pricey ones, but it's actually pretty nice. I'm kind of that enjoying looks tasty. this. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I like the glass too. I like these glasses. They look really pretentious. Got to have the right it. glass. You can for the right you can drink. hold it like this and look like really snobby. It's that looks great. good. Looks yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I'm gonna have to up my beverage game mm. for. The Adult Music Podcast. Yeah, I do have, have a new bottle of of, um, of Knobs Creek though for uh, next week, so I'm oh, ready okay. to go with that old reliable here on the um, Knob Creek. Sorry, not Knobs Creek. I'm thinking of <laughs> 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 thinking of Knobs. Oh my! Oh man! Oh wow! All right. Anyway, we're back in autumn, and that means back to back to the hard liquor. <laughs> for hard me. liquor for autumn. You, you've you've been going all through summer, I know, with the uh, the the bourbon, but uh, I got to lighten up in the summer. Well, I started it's with a little style. Spanish wine uh, Ooh, very today, nice. and so this is just uh, dessert. Was it cold or was it? Uh, no, was no, it cold? no, no, no. It was uh, a red one. What is it? Is it sweet? Rejadorada, I think, or something like that. Uh, no, no, a nice dry Spanish wine. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know much about those, i got to say. They're pretty good. Yeah. All right. So here we are. Uh, what is episode 29? Oh, almost at 30. Almost 30. Next week will be yeah. 30. And this week we have a European theme in both classical and jazz music. Not only a European theme, we have a Mozartian theme in the classical end. It's a very Mozart week and... Uh, there's a lot of new Mozart coming out. Actually, I could we we could even do a whole an all Mozart show next week if we wanted to, but I think I'll uh, spread those out a little bit. We'll see. There's a lot. That of might be a good idea. Mozart yeah. out. There's still a lot of good Mozart out. Good performances. So you're gonna hear two of them today. There it is. I just told you. It's um, I like them all. <laughs> yeah, these are enjoyable. Um, yeah. Before we get into the program for this week, let's remind our listeners that. In the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss this week. And also at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming service, Deezer. You can also follow us there at uh, username Adult Music Podcast and listen to the podcast on Deezer too. Uh, if you can't see the full description or list of the works on whatever app you're listening on, uh, hop on over to our host, which is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and everything is in the right format and easy to follow there. You can follow the listening links or links to the other information. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, if you take a moment also to give us a ranking or write a review, that will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow our audience, which we're always looking to do. 
And if you have anything more detailed or personal you'd like to get in touch with us about, uh, comments or questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us directly by email. And our address is Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, please write to us. Also, um, listeners with very sensitive ears may notice I have good news for you. Um, I no longer have a squeaky chair now. <laughs> I've had a chair. I've been leaning back in my chair for the last few weeks, and it's been squeaking, and the mic has been picking it up. I've, I noticed it myself, and uh, you know, Russ noticed it as well. And this <laughs> week, I took a can of WD forty and just sprayed it into the shaft of the uh, chair, and it actually worked. It's like a miracle product. So I have like what feels like a new chair. It even leans back further too. It's pretty amazing. Wow. Um, the uh, evolution of the chair is actually pretty interesting because when in episode um, when we when we we occasionally do these um, together and sometimes we're on we're doing them over Zoom on um, in separate locations like today, but when we first started doing them in separate locations, I didn't even have a chair. I was sitting on the floor. I mean, we are in Japan, and I had this low table and uh, tatami mat room. But since that time, I've moved and I have like an, a whole setup here now. So. Um, I'm in a chair, but it was squeaking. Now it's not squeaking anymore. Just uh, onward and upward here at the Adult Music Podcast. That's right. When the R&M mm-hmm. studio, soon we're going to have a special chair right. with our names on each uh, On the seat. back of each, like a D.W. Griffith That's or, uh, well, who's the other guy? Cecil B. DeMille, right? Yeah. So we're waiting as the support rolls it's in. It's long. Yeah. Soon we'll be in our customized studio, but uh, at least yeah. we have the... Important things where sound counts and content is most important. So onward and I'm upward. Re- you know, we may even be have videos on YouTube one day too. If, I mean, I imagine if we ever get our own sort of studio where we're together all the time, uh, we'd yeah. probably do video, right? We'd I'm glad to- we'd held off because I wouldn't want you know my fame to rise just because of my rugged masculine looks. So. Yeah, I, I I just don't want to have to shave and wear a nice shirt all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, just make it by our mellifluous tones and uh, interesting music. Then right. we can reveal our faces. Yeah. Yeah, and then people are just yeah. You, as usual, you see the person's face and you're just totally shocked. The voice doesn't ever go with the face, you know. Like all those radio DJs when you were a kid and you, you saw them on TV and you're like, oh, that, that's her. That's him. That's her. Oh. Oh yeah, that was Casey Kasem. Oh my God. Casey Kasem was only one of many. Yeah, just many. Yeah. Who's the WPLJ? Carol Miller. Oh, Remember right. her? Did you listen? Were you in New York? Did you hear PLJ? Uh, I've heard of her. You too far yeah, north. It's a long time ago. but Yeah, she was one of uh, WPLJ FM's big uh, DJs. A lot of us had a big crush on her oh. back in the day. And um, that she was on some TV show. I was like, oh, that doesn't look like her. I mean, she was really pretty, but right. um, I just didn't. Th- that wasn't the face that I imagined oh, right. when I heard that voice. You know, a face for radio and a voice for print. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, a voice for print. Yeah, there you go. All right. So anyway, we, we... we have uh, some sweet tones for any instruments this evening, beginning with lots of Mozart. Yeah, and in fact, we're going to start out with a um, a pretty major. Mozart release, and because it's by the pianist Vikinger Olafsson, Icelandic pianist who's really making a big splash in the classical music world these days, at least as far as recordings go, um, 
And well, no, definitely even even in the concert hall, but I haven't actually heard him play live yet. I, I don't go to concerts anymore either. Here in Japan, in you know where we are in Kansai, I mean, if you live in Tokyo, you're um, you know, all these people come by and you can hear them for a usually for an exorbitant price. And only some of them come to the Kansai area, so we get to we don't get to hear them too often. And they're very, very few expensive. after the uh, nuclear accident right. and earthquake. Uh, there's right. not been much now with COVID. We yeah, have great nothing. concert halls here, though, so you know it's it's a shame, really. Um, Something to hope it, for. Yeah, they. Uh, but when when pianists of this caliber play here, they they usually charge a lot of money to go because there's no, you, you know the. Um, you're you're really paying the whole cost as the ticket buyer. Usually, like in, in in at least in the United States, things are kind of subsidized by I don't know very rich people or some you know foundations or anything. Yes. Yeah, benef- benefactors or whatever. So the prices aren't that big, but not in Japan. <laughs> you got to really reach into your pocket here. Yep. You know. Okay, so anyway, our first album for this week, this is a major release in the classical music world, Vikingur Olafsson, Icelandic pianist. Uh, the album is called Mozart and Contemporaries, and it's on the Deutsche Grammophon label. And this is making uh, a lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot of noise, it's making a lot of mellifluous sounds around the world. I think everybody's loving this record. It's, um, it's really excellent. Um, to begin speaking about this, the first thing we want to talk about, I think, is the album cover, because it's it's caused some uh, eyebrows to be raised. Let me let me kind of explain. It's a picture. You should take a look at this, by the way. Get on the internet. Um, Mozart and Contemporaries. It's a picture of Olafsson. It looks like a sort of picture that's been sort of um, uh, manipulated into a sort of um, graphic design, sort of. It's, it doesn't look like it. Like, it looks like a photo that's been made into a high-res painting or something. And it's a picture of him, and he's, his face is reflected on some invisible surface. So you see two, you know, his face upside down as well. He he's likes holding to use a black his face, yeah. Yeah, he's he's holding a long black feather, and here's the here's the shocking part. Are you ready? The black feather is over part of the famous Deutsche Grammophon yellow cartouche that they have on all of their album covers. Yeah, um, Deutsche Grammophon. I am. I understand. I heard uh, Olafson speak on the uh, about this on the uh, Gramophone podcast uh, recently. Um, is the oldest um, record company in the world. They're more than 120 years old, um, and this cartouche has never been covered by anything. It was always in the foreground, and this is the first time ever in their 120 year history that wow. a, a part of that uh, black feather is covering. It's not covering anything. It's it's just. On top of the cartouche. You know, that uh, cartouche is excessively large. It takes up one quarter of the cover, you know. Yeah, they're not as ornate anymore, though. They used to have all these, like, scrolls on the sides, you know, yeah. all these kind of, like, uh, you know, Baroque, almost sort of, uh, like, scrolling um, designs. Now, now it's a little more simple. It's a little simpler, as we said. But, um, so, so there it is. That's, and, uh, but the, Olafson mentioned that he had a lot of meetings with the uh, DG staff about this. Uh, you know, the the president, the, he had to talk to the president of the company about why he wanted to do it. Sorry, about why he wanted to do it. I'll explain that in a minute. And they finally agreed, and that's the first time this has ever been done in Deutsche Grammophon's history. And the uh, owner of the record label assured Olafson that it would be the last time the company ever did that. So this is actually wow. a bit of a collector's item. You should uh, guess, pick yeah. it up just for that. 
And I should you say uh, yeah. that uh, this CD is quite a bargain right now if you want to purchase the physical media. Strangely, the CD is available for less than you can download the MP3 for, uh, much less than the CD uh, quality uh, FLAC download. And uh, the high-res versions, if you're into that kind of thing, are exorbitantly priced. Um, of course, you can enjoy this on streaming because it's widely available. But if you do like to collect physical media, uh, this one is uh, quite a bargain. And I'm thinking of picking up uh, this and a few other of his uh, recent releases because uh, yeah, Gramophone is uh, quite reasonable on their prices for physical media. And uh, this would be one definitely you want to add to your collection on the shelf if you're oriented in that way. Yeah, because it's an excellent performance, and we're going to talk about that right now, and because it's probably going to be a collector's item. This this is really going to be a trivia question one day for, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the question is which, which which you know which is what's the only Deutsche Grammophone album where the uh, part of the cartouche is um, uh, overlapped by the uh, cover design? It's a Jeopardy question, right? Album yeah, be covers like a Jeopardy for, question, uh, yeah. Four hundred. Yeah, yeah kind of like which is the uh, which you know people try to catch me on these uh, some of these questions. This, this would be a question I I would know this one now because of this, but. These types of questions, I don't know. I'm not that fanatic. I'm a pretty fanatical record collector, but I'm not this fanatical. There are people who are beyond me <laughs> as far as <laughs> fanaticism goes, if you can believe it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. It's, yeah, let's so, get into the music here. Let's get into the music. Okay. Oh, oh I, I should mention um, about the feather. Um, uh, it... The design team and Olafsson himself decided to do this because um, the Black Feather is for the dark, introspective Mozart that we hear on this album, basically, because it's fr all this music comes from the it's 1780s. It's mature Mozart, yes. It's mature Mozart. It's from the 1780s. And remember, he died in 1791. At only 35, 36 years old. What was it? 70, yeah, 35 years old. And uh, that's something to think about. Um People will talk about the music he did in the 1780s as Mozart's late, late Mozart. But of course, when Mozart was writing this music, he wasn't thinking that it was his yeah. late period. You know, he wasn't. Yes. He was expecting to live another 35 years at least. You know? So, so I always find that a little odd. These these people these uh, people who have died young, and you're talking about that late period when they're 34 years old. You know, they, they didn't really get a chance to reach that uh, no. period. You don't know what they would have done, um, especially considering, you know, what Beethoven did. You know, Mozart probably would have been, uh, you know, responding to that in some way. It would have been interesting to know what would have happened. Okay, so the Black Feather, Dark Destructive Mozart, and also the, um, the, the, the feather covers the cartouche because... Um, Olafsson wanted to send the message that uh, Mozart, um, you know, the, the cartouche represents tradition. You know, the yellow uh, Deutsche Grammophon cartouche, it's 120 years old, tradition. And Mozart always gave tradition a little twist. This is according to Olafsson. You can listen to the Gramophone podcast. He talks about all of these things there. Um, and uh, so th the covering, it, it's sort of indicative of Mozart kind of giving tradition a little twist. All right. So there you go. That's why it's there. Okay. Onto the music, which is really the most important part. Okay, so we're already kind of excited about this. Um, 
Okay, so he's very he's mature here. And uh, the album's called Mozart and Contemporaries. There are four other composers on this album um, from the uh, Austrian and German side. Uh, Josef Haydn and C.P.E. Bach, both friends of Mozart. Um, Haydn was much older. Haydn was more Mozart's father's age, but he was a little bit of a surrogate musical father to, to Mozart. He was a nice guy, Haydn, whereas Leopold Mozart, Mozart's actual father, also a composer and musician, uh, was was <laughs> not a nice guy to Mozart. He had a lot of trouble. Uh, the, the two of them didn't get along, let's just say. And Mozart, uh, his whole trip to Austria was breaking free. He didn't take, of his father, he didn't take a, a court position, which would have been the thing to do at the time. So he tried to get subscription concerts and that sort of thing. And that's where all this music comes from. His um, his subscription concerts and also from uh, works he wrote for um, students of his. Um, he, he didn't make the money that you would have made, that a man like Haydn made, because Haydn worked for the Esterhaza court. So he, was, he had the steady income. But Mozart had to teach. And uh, he wrote a lot of pieces for his students as well. And we hear a few of those on this album too. C.P.E. Bach was... He was a little older than Mozart, but he was pretty much Mozart's contemporary, I guess. Um, you can kind of see why C.P.E. Bach, Mozart liked C.P.E. Bach's music. It was, um, Bach had a, C.P.E. Bach, Caulfield Emanuel Bach, had a sense of humor that Mozart would have appreciated. He would kind of interrupt a lot of the, um, the melodic, the rhythmic, uh, patterns in his music. He sets you up and then yeah, he pulls the carpet out from under you, yeah. Right, and this, this is the kind of humor that Mozart liked, okay? And uh, Mozart does it too, but he does it so much more elegantly. You know, C.P.E. Bach is a little gruff in the in his approach. Yeah. But it's fun. It's it's actually, especially C.P.E. Bach's music is fun for our era, especially. Yeah, and he I has think. those yeah. like great sort of rhythmic figures and tempos that he gets ro- rollicking along. Uh, so he's really identifiable once you get to know his style. Right. The other two composers on the album are Italians, uh, Baldassare Galuppi and Domenico Cimarosa, who uh, both belong to the same ecosystem of 18th century music as Mozart, but I don't think the Mozart actually knew them. Um, yeah, I didn't really do so much research into these two, but I think they may have uh, been active in Italy. I don't think they came to Austria to make their music. Uh, Galuppi seems to be a, you know, a different, you know, different style completely, so... He's older, too. He's the oldest composer on the album, born in 1706. So he's older than Haydn. Yeah. Remember, remember Mozart Galop's was born style, in 1756. Yeah. Haydn and Mozart, the thing, the, the, the thing to understand is Haydn and Mozart really invented the, uh, the classical style, this whole idea of the line and all the uh, different voices kind of in communication with each other. Before that, before the, and after the Baroque style, so between Baroque and classical, there was something called the Galant style, which was something that was all surface. It was just this elegant surface, and there wasn't really much depth to it. Mozart and Haydn brought the depth. And Galuppi and Cimarosa really were more in the Galant yeah, style. Gal- so Galuppi's is very Galant, yeah. Bach, yeah. CPA Bach is maybe sometimes categorized that, but I think you know he's more far-reaching than... Uh, yeah, he's got that. content, but I don't think he has any darkness in his music, whereas Mozart... Very emphatically does, yeah, does as we'll for sure as we'll hear. Okay, all right. Now, these two composers. Um, one of the things Olafson hoped to achieve on this album is by mixing Mozart's celebrated music with more obscure music from the era. He wanted to slightly alter our psychological attunement by removing some of the baggage we all bring with us as we come to Mozart's music. Obviously, I read that from the. Oh, so the this booklet. is going to be therapeutic. 
it's therapeutic for us because mm-hmm. um, we think of these guys you know, Mozart the giants right and they are they're really some of the best composers who ever lived and uh, I, <laughs> if anyone wants to dispute that I mean it's really inarguable Mozart it's, it's, it's like miracle after miracle a lot of his music um, uh, he, he really was at some peak of um, musical you know comprehension and understanding at the time Okay, people alive in this era, of course, would have been familiar with uh, music of Mozart's contemporaries as well as his, so he would have been one among many. And Mozart's music wasn't as appreciated as it is today when he was alive, okay? It was complicated, it was, you know, it, it doesn't sound that way to us, but again, it was all very fresh and new at the time, and people had trouble following it. There's that famous line in uh, the movie Amadeus, which really shouldn't be taken as uh, biog- biographical, it's really not like that, but it has a lot of like truth to it, like general truth. When the um, um, the uh, I guess it was the emperor heard um, one of Mozart's opera, and he uh, he was asked what he thought about it, and he said, "Oh, too many notes." <laughs> Okay, so it's too complicated for his simple mind, basically. Okay, and these were people who funded the arts, who you know, uh, but and maybe he was a, he was a fairly musical, musically sophisticated guy. But Mozart was just like leagues above all these people, and um, it it probably took a while for the world to really grasp what he had done. Um, and he died all too soon, of course. Okay. There are people alive in Mozart's time who are probably avid music listeners who may not have ever heard Mozart's music. It's possible. Although, I guess the operas you would have known. Le Nozze di Figaro, Don Giovanni, they were very popular. And uh, people would sing them in their homes. You know, because, you you know, operas weren't like playing all the time like they are in New York or in Europe today. So, um, you'd have to, you know, get the sheet music, go home and have people in your family sing it while you played the piano or vice versa or whatever. Okay, there were music-making families among the bourgeoisie of the time. Okay, Baldassare Galuppi, widely celebrated in his day, but forgotten outside of Italy once the 18th century ended. He's very much in the Galant style. It's all very pretty music. I mean, it's, it's the lines are all very clear, um, but harmonically, it doesn't really do all that much. It's it's very much remains on the surface, and it just remains this um, charming, delightful sort of um, uh, sort of I hate to say wallpaper. It's not. It's more than wallpaper. It's it's actually very good. It's very appealing and charming. But it doesn't go beyond charm. That's the thing about it. Uh, also, choose chose to include him because of a video recording of Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli of the 20th century great 20th century pianist playing the C major sonata number five in 1962. And Gluppi opens the program. We hear his very pretty Andante Spiritoso movement from piano sonata number nine in F minor. Now, Olofsson doesn't play any complete Galuppi sonatas. He just plays movements. That's kind of a shame. I wish he would have chosen one of them. No worries. I have remedied this uh, problem by including an entire album of Galuppi sonatas. (laughs) We'll talk about that next. Okay. And here we get to hear just what a magnificent pianist Olofsson is. He has this light touch and he gets this gently percussive effect. It's amazing. It has to be really close miking that that kind of achieves this. I can't imagine you're going to hearing the hammers hitting the strings like this in the concert hall. I, I'm going to have to go hear him one day. Um, it makes the work leap out. I mean, the, the it it sounds very appealing in his hands. He really he merely makes everything uh, very appealing. Okay. Um, He's a good. This work is really over way too fast. It's really nice. Okay, and his playing of it is just so magnetic. I would have liked to have heard the whole, um, 
the whole work, the whole sonata, the whole three movement work. Okay, the second movement, Mozart, Rondo in F major, K494. These rondos that Mozart made. Now remember, a rondo, it's a theme, then you depart from the theme, come back, depart, come back. So it goes around. Rondo means round in Italian. And this was also a form of music known in England as well. Okay, in this piece, though, Mozart doesn't follow, you know, the tradition very strictly. The rondo theme is heard four times, but you never never hear it the same way twice. It's really inventive. Like, he just kind of alters little notes in the rondo theme. It's it's really fantastic. Um um, also, make sure you notice the differences by the way he phrases too, because um, he, he he sort of ch- slightly changes the phrasing to make the um, the the changes, the differences in the melody uh, leap out. They're very they're very subtle. They're very small. I mean, the whole melody, the outline is still the same, but they're just occasional different notes. Like one time there'll be like grace notes, or another time there'll be like a little pause or something like that. So listen to that when you uh, listen for that when you hear this work. Okay, and um, yeah. With, I mean, both in the Galuppi and here, you'll get a sense of his incredible, you know, sensitivity of articulation. His art, which is Olofsson. great. Yeah, yeah Olofsson's playing. Yeah. And also the dynamics, the contrasts on all these pieces are really nice, especially on the, this rondo. But, you know, often we hear Mozart played very, how can I say, lightly. Right. Or, you know, sort of, um, and I don't want to say, because light can be good. But in any sense of this classical period, sometimes the music doesn't have uh, weight. But I feel that uh, Olofsson's playing is got a lot of weight and sort of gravitas in the way that he uses his left hand. And so yeah. he really roots even some of the lighter works so that they really get a foundation and draw you in uh, with you know, especially the way that he uses his his right hand. Uh, even when his right hand uh, gets very fleeting on some of the uh, lighter tones, he he always has this sort of authority uh, in the harmony and in the lower notes that sort of somehow even makes you know the ornamented uh, passages seem very. St- sincere and uh, serious so you don't sort of get off into flights of fancy um that you think oh this is just pretty it, i always found that he he drew me in to listen to things as a serious statement regardless of right. the mood of the piece which i found it's something to do with his touch and the the sort of authority that he brings uh in the way he attacks the keys Right, and we had just mentioned that Galuppi's music is very, like, surface. It's very gallant, right? And yet, that Galuppi movement and the other ones we hear on this album come across as uh, having a little more weight than you generally think when you hear these works. Yeah. Um, it's because of his playing. It's pretty remarkable. So you have a great uh, great composer in Mozart, and you have a great uh, pianist here. And, uh, boy, the fireworks happen. Um, he has he has this way of, um, you say, the light touch. He also likes to play melodies staccato. He does this a lot. He doesn't really do much legato or connected playing. Staccato means like you're just kind of 
you know, playing the note and like letting it go and the, the notes don't really connect. Although you can hear the connections in the way he phrases, right? Yes. Um, but he seems to like that a lot. And he, he alters his, his staccato. He starts with the staccato and then he alters it with each return of the melody. It's really inventive playing. Absolutely fantastic in this piece. So right away, only two tracks in. I'm just fascinated. This is going to be a very long uh, time that we're talking about this album because it is really remarkable. Uh, it must be heard if you're, especially if you're a fan of Mozart, if you want to hear some great piano playing. That staccato approach he uses, we heard it a lot. He he made a recording of Bach works a few years ago, and um, another amazing. Um, uh, recording but all that staccato in Bach I was kind of you know, the notiness of it was kind of starting to drive me crazy even though the interpretations <laughs> were really fantastic you know it's it's a record I kind of I approach with trepidation because I, I I know it's really great but I'm like oh, I don't know don't want to hear it played this way I don't know you know it's sort of like that mm. I didn't get that here though I, I did like this record all right third track we have cpe bach that's carl philip emmanuel bach that's Bach, the great johann sebastian bach's second son and oldest surviving son okay uh, this is his rondo in d minor so we get another rondo so we, we already know the form and this work dates from his later years also the 1780s so it's probably contemporary with um, the mozart work that we just heard it's an interesting contrast to the mozart rondo um, because he uses dynamics in his music to interrupt the steady flow of the musical line. This is typical of Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Um, and um, thankfully, Olafsson has the sense of humor necessary to put yes. this music across. Some pianists don't. They don't really yep. get it. They just play through. Uh, but Olafsson does. He, he does have this. Okay, the Rondo Melody has quirks in it. And um, they're really appealing to hear. I'd love to hear um, actually Olafson do a whole album of CPE Bach. I think it, I bet it would be really great. You know, he, yeah, he gets he, the humor he gets here, it. and then yeah. but also the fast figures are really amazing on this. The technique yeah, really that's true you know, too, blows yeah. you away. And the other thing I was thinking with this album, even though as we're just getting into it, um, as it goes on towards the end, it's more Mozart heavy. But he has, you know, as an artist. Uh, an interesting concept of the programming because uh, I imagine if they let him get the feather, you know, over the gramophone, uh, uh, the cartouche, the yeah, cartouche, yeah. that uh, he also has license with deciding on his program. It's not in sort of the promotion and production. So when he decides the order and uh, the sort of programming, I think he's very deliberate with that. And so on his previous, on the, uh, Rameau and Debussy. Oh, that was fantastic which was a strange, too. Yeah. You know, which on the surface seems like a strange combination, but he had a very deliberate uh, plan in what he was doing. And I think he has that here as well. You know, it's obviously, if you think Mozart and contemporaries, there there have been a lot of these type of releases uh, uh, recently with like the Bavose, you know, um, yeah. Beethoven and contemporaries. Or, or oh, that was really like good that. as well. That was yeah. good too. But, I think that Olafson has a, that there's something very specific about what he's doing with putting these pieces in the program here. So I think you know we should pay attention to what's going on in his not only the selections but also the ordering that he's come up with here because I think he's taking you on a journey for you know following his uh, approach to this music. Right, that Jean-Alphonse um record that you just talked about, uh, Beethoven's contemporaries. 
came out in uh, 2020, I think. Right. And it was uh, nominated for a Gramophone Award this year in the piano category, which it didn't win. But uh, we'll be talking about that soon when we finally do our Gramophone Awards uh, opinion podcast, <laughs> which is coming up, I think, in a week and a half. We'll do it. Yeah. We'll do that as a special midweek episode. Okay, onward to track four. We're only on track four. Wow, so much we've already said, had so much to say about this uh, very weighty album. Uh, this is uh, Cimarosa, the uh, Italian composer. Uh, Sonata number 42 in D minor, which is in a single brief movement. Okay, the Cimarosa works are possibly complete in their single movement, sort of like Scarlatti, but we're not really sure. Uh, due to the era when multi movement sonatas were in style, Impossible single movements for longer sonatas. These Chimarosa movements are possibly single movements from longer sonatas. We don't know. Um, they sound like they are, to be honest. Olofsson has harmonized the Chimarosa works for the modern piano and the, because the original scores are sparsely detailed, so you can't just kind of play them, even like you could with a Scarlatti score. Um, and um, his harmonization sounds a little thick in places to me because um, it, it doesn't have that light sort of... Hmm sort of thing that it, it kind of they almost they almost sound romantic in a way um, but overall it fills out the texture very well this particular sonata moves slowly and hauntingly had a haunting feeling for this Olofsson again making most of the contrast in his playing and programming I think yeah, this I, is a movement from a longer work <laughs> I, I wrote haunting too and I, yeah. I also thought that uh, what comes next putting this before the Mozart Fantasia was a, a really good choice of yeah. a sort of segue into what's coming uh, next. There's Very just the right place to put this this piece, and the way he did it leading into the Mozart was uh, ideal. Yeah, I actually wrote for the next one, Mozart Fantasy in D minor, a nice lead-in from the previous work, are my yeah. exact words. Yep. I noticed that, you too. You picked it up, and, too. Yeah, it's... um, the, the, This is a fantastic... It's fantastic programming, so if any listeners out there aren't very familiar with classical music. I mean, you'll get this. You don't really have... He, he's an excellent um, yeah. host for this kind of music or like presenter of this music. He'll, he makes you understand it. I think, uh, so I think this is an excellent record for really anybody yeah. to hear. And this um, one that, as the Cimarosa, it's, as you say, it's, a, it seems to be a part of something bigger, but we don't know. But yeah. the Fantasia has a, you know, much more complex sort of overarching structure, but uh, Olofsson really gets the whole arc of this composition here. So although they're similar in sort of mood uh, or character, I should say, uh, the Simrosa is sort of like a an appetizer for the Mozart, which has this big arc, which he understands mm -hmm. fully and, and is prepared for. And so he gives you that appetizer, and this is sort of the main course of something different before we go back to the other rondos. So I, I really thought that was a nice, you know, sort of turn in the programming. Yeah, it's a pretty magical moment in this whole album as well. Okay, the, the work in question is Fantasia in D minor, K397. Uh, K, by the way, for those of you who don't know, means a commercial. Uh, Kerschel was the uh, man who organized he was a big Mozart fan he organized all of his music after Mozart died so uh, he's honored by uh, his ordering system okay is still used today although it's been changed a little bit okay 
Um, so nice lead in. Olafsson here manages to get a softly struck, very quiet sound at the beginning. Absolutely magical. It evokes a sense of mystery. And he keeps this creeping sense of intensity going throughout the six-minute work. It's a very original approach. And in fact, I don't know any pianist who can get this kind of sound. It's really amazing. Uh, I've never heard this um, rather cerebral cerebral work for Mozart played this way. Um, we, he also, Olsen also makes sure we hear the brief resemblance to Chopin's Raindrop Prelude, the later, you know, Chopin came later, at around the three-minute mark, by the way, he waits the bass, like the bass, dun, 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 you hear just a brief moment or something like that. He really does kind of re recall that uh, Chopin Prelude is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Mozart uh, forecasted a lot of the music that was to come, especially a lot of Beethoven. All right, number six, Mozart, track six, D major rondo, K485. Okay, now the previous Fantasia that we heard, D minor, is unfinished. So Olofsson ends it where the D minor section finishes on a dominant chord and leads it into the quick-paced rondo in D major. Okay, so the um, so you have the, D, the dominant chord would be in A major, and instead of going back to the D minor of the Fantasia, it goes to the D major of the rondo. It's really clever. Um, um, this is this work catapults us out of the Fantasia. It's pretty quick. Uh, it's lively, and we're in a different place now. So he's lifted the weight from our shoulders for the moment. Track seven, another uh, Cimarosa work, Sonata number fifty-five in A minor, also slow. It's a bit more uh, classical era sounding than the more romantic number forty-two that we heard before. Softly and beautifully played. Um, and then we go after that to a three movement work, the first one on the album. So it's kind of, I think this is kind of a midway point uh, by Haydn, Josef Haydn. Um, piano Sonata number 47 in B minor. We get all three movements of this work. Uh, the theme has a kind of lurching rhythm that makes it easy to identify in the development. So when you get to the middle part of the movement, it's it's pretty easy to remember this this particular theme. And also Haydn had a sense of humor. It was a different than CPE Bach's, but he still had this sort of sense of humor, these little clever things that he would do in his compositions. And Mozart loved this sort of thing. Olafsson doesn't play the repeat of the exposition in this work. Now, usually when you hear like the themes, um, the pianist will go back to the beginning and play them again to make sure that they're in your head. Um, Olafsson doesn't do this. He skips it. He goes right into the development, and this movement is very short, as is the next movement, the Menuet and Trio, which is a little odd. Okay, well, actually, no, it's, it's only three movement work, so it's not odd. Okay. The Menuet has Haydn's usual charming figuration. Menuets are generally, it's a dance. They're usually pretty predictable. Uh, the Trio has a guitar-like bass propelling the melody, sort of like strumming sort of sound in the bass, like arpeggios. Um, the movement um, is over before you know it, and then uh, movement three comes, very quick, lightly percussive, and uh, it's pretty short at two minutes and nine seconds. It ends very abruptly. So this kind of has a bit of the CPE Bach feeling to it, I thought. Track 11, Mozart Kleine Jig in G major. I didn't even know this work. It's very short. Really it's short. It's got an odd off-kilter beginning, but it sort of writes itself by the end, and it's kind of shaped like a Bach dance. It's got two sections, both of which repeat. Uh, if you know the Bach uh, suites, that's the form I'm talking about. And it's called a gig too, so I guess he's thinking of Bach there. All right, 
Tracks 12 to 14, Mozart Piano Sonata number 16 in C major, K545, the Sonata Facile. If you played the piano, you probably played the first movement of this piece <laughs> and possibly all of it. Um, it's Olafsson in the booklet makes a big deal of how he learned to play this piece as a child. And he um, he said that it was it's a it's a work that Mozart wrote in his later years for beginners. So it's not a work that a child wrote for a child to, for himself to play. It's a, a work an adult wrote for a child, and for that reason, it's a bit difficult to play. Even though it's it's on all the uh, it's in C major, so it's all on all the white notes of the piano, and uh, it, that kind of makes a lot of the um, the figuration the 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 really fast scales hard to play because they're all on the same level. Okay, although it's easy to read, obviously, because you have to think of where all the the uh, sharp and flat notes are. Okay, this staccato. He he plays this kind of like as a, in his staccato style, and this is a really cheerful piece. But the staccato makes the piece rather dry sounding and notey. It's kind of like got this sort of um, ticking sort of sound. He's so engaging though in the way he shapes the phrases that I liked this. And any other pianist played it this way, I know I wouldn't have liked it. You know, I'd like to hear it more legato. It's it's usually not my kind of playing for this piece. The second movement gets that gorgeous muted pinging sound in the piano strings that we heard in the opening Galuppi piece. I really love that. Um, that's This is something it seems like only Olafsson can do. Um, it's very appealing. Olafsson captures the sense of the child's innocent mind that these, this piece puts across. Um... He says that this piece, people think about this piece as for children, but it's really a piece for adults who are looking back at childhood. And you should think of it that way, I think. I think that's pretty accurate. The lack of extraneous material in Mozart's music somehow magically lifts the extraneous thoughts and problems off of us. I got this idea when hearing this uh, particular piece. Mozart may be the best example of the transcendence of art. There's a kind of magic in this music, and there's also a kind of magic in this performance that we just heard of the of this uh, piano sonata. This is one of the most engaging performances of this work I've ever heard. Okay, after that we hear the closing. Uh, oh, sorry, um, the closing rondo of that piece of the uh, piano sonata in C major uses a lot of staccato as we heard in the opening, and it's so well thought out that you welcome the unusual approach. All of the harmonies crystal clear. All right, we still have some music to go here, though. Um, track 15, Adagio, an E-flat major from string quintet number three in G minor, Kershaw 516, arranged by the pianist, Vikingur Olafsson. This is really odd. Um, this is, he, um, the string quintet, I know the string quintet fairly, quin, quintet, sorry, that's five instruments. That's, uh, in his case, uh, two violins, two violas, and a cello. Um, okay, as with the Chimarosa, Olafsson's arrangement is a bit heavier than we would expect from Mozart, okay, pushing it slightly into romantic territory. It's really odd to hear this piece on the piano, to be honest, because like, I'm familiar <laughs> with the string quintet version. Yeah, I'll have to get used to this. It's fantastic playing, as you'd imagine, but I think it loses some of the weight that it has when played as a quintet. There are some moments that really register as, you know, with the, the melodic and then the sort of, this kind of, kind of heavy it's not heavy but it's kind of it's heavy but it's it's dark but there's a kind of a weight being pressed on you that Mozart's able to achieve and I don't really get that in this arrangement 
there's some darkness in the movement that doesn't completely come across on the piano. So I thought this was just, this was kind of a, if you can call it that, a weak spot on the album, but there's nothing wrong with it. Of course, it's very good. Okay, 16, track 16, Galuppi again, Larghetto from Piano Sonata number 34 in C minor. Again, a single movement from a longer work. This starts with slowly cascading downward arpeggios. It's pretty, it wears out its welcome as the piece goes on because it just kind of keeps going. Uh, also gets a lot of rhetoric out of this very spare movement, which is pretty impressive. Okay, and uh, let's see, track 17 to 19, we get another Mozart Sonata. This one is in C minor, a much darker key than C major. This is number 14 in C minor, K457. First movement, Molto Allegro, the opening chords burst out of the speakers after the quiet Galuppi movement. Olsen plays this one pretty straight with beautiful articulation throughout. I especially enjoyed the bubbly ending in the lower end of the piano. Second movement, Adagio. The melody is beautifully articulated. This movement is as long as the two outer movements put together. A big major Mozart composition here. There are hints of Beethoven's famous pathetique sonata slow movement. Very famous, you've all heard it. Uh, that movement was still, still a good 10 plus years away from this, so Beethoven was listening. This movement goes into more psychological depth than Beethoven's movement, which is unusual because Beethoven, as we know, goes into a lot of psychological depth, especially in the string quartets. But it, just in this particular case, Mozart really achieves a lot of uh, a lot of depth in this movement. Um, anyway, in the Pathétique, Beethoven's Pathétique, he had already expressed uh, a lot of uh, psychological depth in the first movement. So I think his second movement was supposed to be like a little relax, you know, vacation from that. Anyway, back to Mozart. The third movement, Allegro Assai, has a lot of contrast and dynamics, uh, with the movement starting with a vine-like winding melody, like a vine wrapping around a pole, that's interrupted by dramatic pounding chords. Beethoven definitely noticed this too. He does this sort of thing a lot. Okay, you can hear similar techniques in all of his piano sonatas. Okay, so Olasa makes the most of the contrast without going into the Romantic era level dynamics. Good for him. This movement has psychological issues. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with the movement, but it's it's putting across psychological issues. Let's just say it that way. The winding melody is in a dark key area, and pounding sounds like the pounding sounds come across like cries of anguish. It doesn't end with a to, with the tonality resolved. No, it. I'm sorry, I got this wrong. The tonality is resolved at the end, but the psychological issues raised during the movement are not. Resolved. Okay, so you kind of walk away with this feeling um, a little off-kilter, I think. Okay, two more tracks left. Mozart Adagio and B minor, K540. This is another slow piece that goes into lonely, psychologically disturbed key areas. So we had all this kind of like contrast in the beginning, and now we've gone into this really dark place, and it's almost like we're descending into this this depression that we can't get out of as far as Olofsson's uh, programming goes. This is also a fragmented melody, gets interrupted a lot, indicating interrup interruptions of thought. And it's a pretty long movement, it's 7 minutes, 34 seconds. It resolves securely at the end, and we end with a religious work by Mozart, Ave Verum Corpus, which was a choral work um, originally, and this is an arrangement by Franz Liszt, so it's going to have sort of a romantic quality to it. Um, chiming tones at the beginning of what was originally a vocal work, Olafsson has a real way with the holy stillness and tranquility of this piece. 
excellent programming after the disturbing sonata and adagio that preceded it. So we get all this darkness in the sonata and the adagio. And at the end, we come across pleading for mercy, and which we get from divinity itself, from God. Okay, an excellent release. Great programming. And uh, all of a sudden, is a fantastic pianist who I'm just going to be following. As long as I'm alive, I guess he's going to outlive me. <laughs> okay. A pianist who projects what I'm going to be sure to keep myself informed, whose projects I'm, I'm going to be sure to keep myself informed of. He's at the top of his game, both in his playing and in his programming. This recording is not to be missed by anyone. Please give it a listen. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Mozart releases focus on the pretty and the polish, and this one really gets to the depth and um, he really draws you in and makes you see what's inside the compositions and the emotion behind them and uh, his playing has a lot of real good depth and uh, I enjoyed this a lot more than I do most Mozart sort of uh, compilations and the program is interesting with the contemporary pieces and the way he stitches them together to take you through this sort of journey here so uh, I found this one extremely interesting and uh, yeah, almost beyond comprehension of a uh, combination of all the things required for excellent playing with technique and tone, dynamics, phrasing. Uh, everything's here. You, you can listen to this over and over and over and still find new things to you know, fall for inside this recording. Not only that, uh, a composer like this with Mozart and a pianist like this who really gets the idiom very well together, it's its just complete magic. One of the things about Mozart, Mozart is one of my favorite composers. Um, he, uh, There's a kind of magic to his music that kind of puts me immediately, like at the snap of a finger, in a different place. And uh, so I, I, could, I could hear Mozart. It, it, I guess it depends on the work. Um, but um, and, and it'll just put me in this much better, higher place like uh closer to like a an optimism or even to um almost a holy state i guess you can say than, the divine um, mike the divine mike i i become the divine mike um <laughs> when i when i hear most i was when i was listening to this recording i was thinking of i noticed this about myself that i had just kind of completely changed and been absorbed in the program and That's it reminded why your chair me chair isn't squeaking you're levitating that, that must be it i must be levitating but it reminds me of um, St. Paul, his words in the, um, the first uh, letter to the Corinthians where he says, um, we will all be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Okay. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. And I feel that Mozart kind of almost taps into that kind of that ability to just change you in the instant. So he's got a bit of... Uh, divine quality to his music so look for that in yourself let us know if that happens to you i'd yes. be very interested to know okay anyway on that recording we heard a lot of uh, some galuppi only single movements and i was kind of curious about galuppi's music and um it turns out that there's a new recording out on the brilliant classics label um of galuppi piano sonatas um played by the italian pianist fernanda damiano um, Brilliant Classics is a Dutch label, and it's a bargain price, sort of like Naxos, right? So it's they're all cheap. Fantastic. So if you see something on the Brilliant Brilliant Classics label, you can just snap it up for Hey, a, Galupi, who knew? It would uh, be so hey. cheap. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> well, Pick I don't it think up. it's him. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's There you brilliant. go. 
Yeah, it's Gloopy really isn't a name I would choose if I wanted <laughs> to change my Italian name to something else. You know, I don't know. It's kind of like, hey, Gloopy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, so I wanted to hear that. I was now. I heard this. I in my um listening week, I heard the Olafson first. I really wanted to hear this album. Yeah, I, I like this it, pianist it's a lot. not really fair to have to yeah. come after Olafson. I have to say, especially for a young pianist, and after Mozart, because like we said, yeah. Galuppi's music is more um surface level. It's all about charm and uh, surface beauty. Okay, there's not really any psychological. Yeah, it's got to sort it. of that, you know, scaled back uh, harmony. Especially, I think this Gallant period, the the left hand harmonization was, you know, that you don't have a lot of counterpoint and things going on from late Baroque. It's sort of minimalized uh, kind of thing. So, right, it's pretty inelegant. I mean, I would. Um uh, it would it would behave well at a cocktail party. It wouldn't uh, upset any of the tables or anything like that. All right. So um, I was afraid that after hearing Olafson, like this would be a letdown, but it really wasn't. I mean, I, I kind of knew that it wasn't going to be like the same as like the um, the Mozart, the depth of the Mozart work. But uh, that wasn't the case. Damiano turns out to be a very good pianist in her own right. And in fact. While Damiano doesn't have Olofsson's subtlety, this recording came across to me as a breath of fresh air after all the calculation on Olofsson's album, um, great as it was. I mean, I really did feel the weight of that. And this album kind of lifted it off me a bit because there's not really this is straightforward. much weight in it. It's very yeah. straightforward. She and her playing is it, very bright. But yeah. she has really good technique and good phrasing, yeah. especially for someone so young. Um, and she just dives in and... I mean, who else is going to have a whole program of Galuppi? So I think that sort of focuses her and she has the right mindset to carry these pieces across in an interesting way. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed her playing a lot. Actually, I was rather delightfully surprised by this. I was kind of expecting, I had low expectations going in, but not not because of the pianist. I, I knew nothing about the pianist, but just because of what we, we had just heard, like one of the world's top pianists as far as I'm concerned, uh, just before it. Okay. So, but she, uh, she, um, does, she gives a good uh, account of herself here. This yeah. is really good. Um, this recording has a lot more room reverb than the Olofsson recording. And yeah. that was also welcome. It was a little less stifling. The piano is yeah. well articulated in the space. You get your head out from under the right. sort of cover now, and you sit back a little bit. Yeah, Damiano doesn't have as much as many tricks as Olofsson, and maybe that's not a bad thing. You kind of know, you know, what to what to expect here. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the Gallant style, just so we know what we're talking about here. Gallant arose in opposition to Baroque's ornate, complicated textures. If you think of like the Brandenburg Concertos by Bach, um, there's all kinds of motion going on, all of these different voices going at the same time. And Gallant wanted to get away from that, make something a little simpler. It emphasized light, elegance, simplicity, immediacy of appeal. It's a good way to describe uh, Galuppi, actually. Um, Gallant would eventually give way to the classical style of Haydn and Mozart, which emphasized the musical line and reached greater emotional depths due to the use of contrasting key areas and extended developments. It's really the building of the key areas and getting far away from the main key that made classical music what it was. It... it it became very psychologically complex. You could actually communicate a lot of psychology in music suddenly. 
So the Gallant style is kind of uh, funny. There's nothing not to like, and yet it doesn't really stick with you. It's all surface charm. It's empty inside. It's <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the uh, Wyndham Hill recordings of the uh, 1980s. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the Wyndham Hill of its time. You know, who who, who recorded for Wyndham Hill? Who's that? Uh, the the uh, pianist George Winston. Oh, something like that. Yeah, George Winston. A good pianist, but again, not 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 making um big statements. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Um, before we get to the music, let's talk about the cover of this one because Fernando Damiano, our pianist on this album, is a piano babe. She's very attractive in an innocent pose on the front cover. And um, if you have the CD, if you're lucky enough to have the CD, you can look at the back cover and she's behind the piano. And she's got this come hither look and hither I came. Anyway. I haven't seen the, the back cover. I'll have to, I'll have to send it to you. Oh. <laughs> I'll show you later. Well, she does have the youthful and youthful charms uh, in her look there. Yep. Aging guys like us appreciate this more and more. It's kind of a shame, really, <laughs> that it has to be this way. All right. Anyway, tracks one to three, piano sonata number two in C minor. Now, to be honest, I don't really have much to say about this music. It's all kind of samey. Uh, the movements are very brief. Um, Damiano manages the gravity of the first movement well. Um, the main focus of this work is probably the second movement, the Allegro. Um, it sounds a lot like the first music, <laughs> like the first movement. And the Larghetto kind of acts like an introduction. It doesn't sound like the first movement. It sounds like this is the first movement, and the Larghetto was just an introduction to that. Um, Damiano does have some phrasing tricks to keep it interesting, which is which is good. So she's actually a really excellent pianist. I wouldn't mind hearing more of her. There's a bit of drama in this particular movement. It's engaging, charming melodies, and um, it's interesting. Third, Allegro Sai is an engaging, straightforward piece for its period. There are contrasting dynamics, but he is an after Mozart's depth of psychology here. I enjoyed Damiano's playing, and there are some impressive technical flourishes by her in this movement. A lot of um, quick scales. Okay. Uh, should I go through all these? I mean, they're, they're all, they all are all kind of samey, to be honest. Um... Um, I had to listen to this album in several sittings because it was all starting to sound a bit samey. There's not much depth to the music, but that's the Gallant style. It's all surface appearance. If you put this on, I mean, you won't be offended by it. You'll like it. It's a good music to cook to or do something or iron or do some household <laughs> chores to. Um, I think that's why, why it was written, to be honest. It was written to be played and enjoyed and just kind of, you know, by people of its era. It's all charming and brief. Um, how much of that can you take is the question, okay? Damiano does a lot to make each individual piece remain interesting. But from piece to piece, it was perhaps a little too much to achieve. Uh, nevertheless, I want to say I enjoyed her playing a lot. Um, maybe in this program, some non-sonata movements could have been included to break up the uh, pattern. Because we hear six, I believe, three movement um, sonatas. And they're not very different from each other. Um... Let me see here. Okay. Okay. Individually, each of Gluppi's sonatas are well worth hearing, but I don't know about 
in a whole program like this. Okay, so it's good. So if you're looking for challenging music, uh, look elsewhere. Um, we can't ask the Glan style not to be the Glan style. It's pleasant but forgettable, and that's why we don't hear much of it. And this is a nice listen, though, if you need to unwind. So I kind of recommend it with those um, because of the piano playing and um, with those uh, reservations. Okay, that it's kind of a little bit, a, a lot of the same. Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> As a, she's so young, and yeah. yet she has really excellent technique. Very nice phrasing yeah. on these pieces. As you say, um, there's a lot of sameness, and it's generally straightforward. Uh, the melodies are good, and you can tell yeah, that she appealing. has a really great uh, right-hand technique, but there's not a lot harmonically uh, going on, and then right. also in the sort of exposition of that, because that's what's you know part of the Gallant style. Uh, so that's just the nature of the the beast with this music. Um, with a young artist like this, I'm sure she could have chosen to do, you know, a program of variety of different pieces, you know, her favorite composers or whatever to show off her technique. So in that sense, I do give her a lot of credit because who else was going to record a whole album of Galuppi? <laughs> Probably no <laughs> one. But I, mm. I, I do like that she stuck with that and then presented that as you know as best as she could and uh honoring that whole style so because of her effort we can get a better sense of galuppi's style rather than just you know bits and pieces of something else so i do admire that that she you know created this release just on one composer uh, especially early in her career and I, I think that's important um you know because a lot of these composers that a lot of people don't know about, uh, we may hear one work, but doesn't give us a big impression. But she has the technique and uh, ability to, you know, give us an impression of, you know, the composer's, you know, works on a larger kind of scale than we might get elsewhere. And she does a, you know, really good effort. And I think she shows off that she's got a lot of skills. And she can go anywhere from here, uh, being so young and so... Yeah, I think we're going to hear, you know, big things from her in the future. Uh, attacking yeah, I'd like things. to hear her. Yeah, I'd, I'd like, like to hear, hear her in more, more complicated music. I also oh. want to applaud her because she's an Italian pianist and she's um, uh, promoting uh, un unknown old Italian music. And that's always good that's great. when you kind yeah. of look into Someone's your Someone's so uh, young doing past. such yeah. kind of old music that's also not well known. That's right. Uh, as you know, the contrast there and the effort with it, I really appreciate that. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, and again, she's it's not just that she has a great technique and she's also got some good ideas. So she's able to uh, manipulate the um the material so that on repeats, for example, she'll like alter certain um elements of the melody or rhythm to um make it kind of jump out a bit more. Really excellent pianist. I'm really looking forward to hearing more from her. Um I'm glad I heard this album. I I hope I didn't make it sound um you know, I didn't dismiss it. I didn't I don't think it was worth going through the six pieces simply because um they are they are sort of similar in kind, but uh, I did I did enjoy this album. But sitting down and concentrating on it was too much. I probably should have listened to the whole thing while I was, you know, making note my notes about um, the coming week's work or something like that. Oiling your All chair. Right. Okay, now going from the simple to the complex, or oiling my chair. That only took a few seconds, really. Okay. I did have to uh, take the the back off though, and it turned out. Um, there's a lot of dust in there too, so actually it's pretty. I'm really enjoying this chair now. It's fantastic. It's kind of. I'm enjoying it too. 
You enjoy my chair? <laughs> yeah, you don't have you don't have to hear these squeaking yeah, headphones to anymore. All right. Well, there you go. Me, me neither. I didn't realize it was bothering me that much. Okay, our last recording in classical for the week is going. Speaking of uh, the complex, um, as far as um, the classical era goes, this is more Mozart. Um, I decided to go with um, to to make like a galoopy sandwich, shall we say? You know, with the two. Uh, Mozart slices of bread there. Do I get provolone on that? Or? Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. All right, this is um, Mozart's uh, three of the six Haydn quartets played by the Quartetto Casals. They are a Spanish string quartet. And this is on the Harmonium, Harmonium Mundi label. Now, this particular quartet, I've been following them for quite a while, and they recorded... Um, all right... In the in the 1780s, this is the same period that Olafsson um, covers on his album. Mozart wrote six string quartets, which he dedicated to Joseph Haydn, and he did that because Haydn had written six string quartets, Opus 33, in which he sort of reinvented the form. The Opus 33 Haydn string quartets made all of the instruments equal partners in this sort of musical dialogue. They all got to play the melody at certain parts, and it was almost like they were conversing. The instruments were conversing with each other uh, during the piece. Mozart liked this style and really picked it up and ran with it when he wrote these six quartets for Haydn. Now, they were written over a period of, um, I think, two or three years. They weren't, like, released as a set. Um, And uh, they really changed music, and they're among my favorite works in the entirety of... uh, classical music, world music, whatever you want to say. Um, I love all six of them. Um, I'll, there is one of these that I like more than the others, but nevertheless, I still I can't do with any without any of these. Okay, so the Quartetto Casals released, they recorded the three other hiding quartets that are not on this album way back in 2014. It's been a seven-year wait for them to complete the set. And because I love these works so much, I've been waiting, and I'm very happy to say that this is released. And these are excellent, just as good, if not better, than the uh, the first three. Now, the first three, I, I gave those another listen, and they sound fantastic. They This... Um, ensemble uses sort of a lighter sort of sound they don't really they didn't really get a sort of heavy sound that some of the older um, recordings had like the quartetto italiano a very famous um uh, set of recordings of mozart string quartets and um one of my favorites the uh, alban berg quartet um i have that on a tell deck release on four cds the late mozart string quartets again the late quartets late in his career I mean, he died at 35. <laughs> You know, it's, what, what would he have done if he lived to even Beethoven's age, you know? Anyway, the three uh, quartets. This album, I think, is actually better than the uh, first three that they recorded because I think over the years they may have matured quite a bit and they get a bit more depth of sound in this recording. They're beautifully recorded. The details are excellent in all three of these works. Um, the first um, one recorded on this new album is String Quartet number 15. That's uh, the second quartet in the set of six dedicated to Haydn. This is in D minor, K421. This is actually my favorite one of the entire set of six. It's um, It's got a lot of um, weight to it. The, there's an opening um, descending cello line, chromatic descending cello line that kind of would in, I guess would indicate death as because uh, the descending chromatic line generally was used in um, funeral marches. 
dun, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's a very sad piece, D minor being, I guess, a sad key. Um, the, the quartet uh, picks this up, um, just communicates this beautifully. I, I loved all the detail in this in this movement. It reminded me a lot of the album Berg Quartet um, uh, recording. Um, it's a little lighter in parts, like the uh, the second movement. A lot of the uh, the melodies are a bit, um, you know, they're, they're sort of a little bit of you know clipped at the end to kind of give a bit more rhythmic bounce. Um, but I liked that. I thought this. I thought that was a really. It was a really good approach. Um, tempos are all beautifully judged. I can't. These are very um, traditional performances. They don't really try to change these works at all, and I'm really grateful for that. These these pieces haven't been recorded in a really long time, or they haven't been recordings by um, top flight string quartets in quite a long time either. So I was really happy to hear these. Okay, the um, the third movement of the uh, string quartet number 15 has this haunting ghostly feeling to it usually that this particular recording doesn't really catch but I didn't really that didn't really bother me they emphasize the rhythm a lot more um, in this and um, I was happy to hear that, that was a, it was a nice uh, difference of approach and then there's this the beautiful fourth movement of this with the um, set of variations on the opening theme which gets slower and slower as it goes and more and more weighty and then at the end it just goes back to its bouncing original theme when we hear that again really a fantastic performance I liked it a lot okay the second string quartet on this album is number 17 that would be number 4 in um, the uh, Haydn set of 6 and this one is nicknamed The Hunt it's probably the most famous one of the four the fourth movement kind of has this hunting horn kind of like horse galloping sort of rhythm to it um, the, the first movement melody is all very familiar. There are all these sort of nice little tricks to, um, make them all fit together. And, um, the quartet here makes sure that you hear, like, the, the differences in, say, variations in the second movement where, um, where the, the minuet and trio, where the, um, the ending of the, um, the melody will go into the bass as opposed to, like, just continuing on the same, um, frequency, you know, the same, the same line. There are all these nice little tricks in this. I, I love this work. It, it's fantastic, and they put it across very well. The last one is uh, string quartet number 18 in A major, K464. This is uh, Haydn quartet number 5. This um, is a work that um, Beethoven really admired, and uh, he actually he copied the form of it in one of his early quartets. Um, it's all constructed out of a single sort of motif, I guess you could say, the one, the first one you hear in when 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 the when the piece starts um again an, another beautiful performance again reminiscent of the album Berg quartets uh sometimes they'll go for like this rhythmic spring um that the um the album Berg quartet doesn't have and i really sort of like that i thought it sounded really fresh um I think, though, that the album Burke Quartet and somehow the older quartets, the Quartetto Italiano, they achieve a lot more depth than modern string quartets have. And I think that might be a because of the age we live in. It's just people aren't really kind of digging into their, those those emotions that deeply. But I have no problem at all with this album. I think I'll be listening to this quite a lot. It's not. It's certainly not surface level. I mean, they do get into the emotions. But I don't know. Maybe it's just that I'm so familiar with those those old recordings that I just kind of don't want to let them go. This will be this will be in my um, 
in my rotation for quite a while though I like this a lot and highly recommend it and if you don't know these works you must hear them they're just magnificent some of the six of the best string quartets ever written in the history of humanity give them a listen and three of them are here let's say these are three of them yeah, these are really nice um, I thought the performances are really excellent yeah uh, and the recording is a delight to listen to um, I thought so too yeah you could hear all the middle voices really clearly yeah, couldn't the, you the each um, musician here has their own individual tones match beautifully, and then on a larger scale, their the synchronicity of their playing is very admirable. I mean, they really act as one uh, larger kind of or musical organism, uh, and so you get drawn into that um, sort of uh, dynamic in their playing where where they become as one. And then in the recording, the detail is uh, very much highlighted and also the spatial characteristics. So uh, regardless of how you listen to this on your speakers or headphones, you'll be able to place each instrument in its own space, which also adds to the level of detail of the different parts in all of the compositions. So I found that the spatial characteristics uh, sort of highlighted the musicality of the different lines of movement. And I was able to follow uh, the pieces and, you know, the movement in the lines even uh, more closely because of the excellent recording. And so I found it really enjoyable. Uh, and uh, in this case, the the Sonics served the performances uh, in a really uh, nice way that I could right, that, uh, go in deeper to them. Yeah, that's a good observation, in fact. Um, I think that's one way this, this recording scores highly over the other ones. It's And it's really the reason why I keep listening to these works, because I keep wanting to hear newer recordings to hear, because recording quality gets better and better as new techniques um to record come across and I think this is an excellent album for that if you really want to get to know these works well uh, this would be a good um, album to listen to you get you really hear all the detail it's fantastic anyway and of course lifted me up changed me like St. Paul said as usual with um, Mozart I love Mozart's music and there we go transformed in an instant I am transformed in an instant that's as right St. Paul promised <laughs> I'm waiting all right. Well, it should have happened already, man. I don't know. Anyway, maybe maybe some of the upcoming jazz will transform you. We'll see. What do you got for us? Well, you know, at the beginning of summer, I was running out of releases <laughs> and wondering what's going to go on. And then, uh, for various reasons, we took a break. And uh, coming back... Now I have a long list of things coming up, uh, and I'm, you know, trying to categorize them now yeah. because I have I've got so that in classical music yeah, too. Yeah, so many things, and uh, you know, I want to get things out uh, timely, uh, not necessarily something that's come out right away because I want to give due diligence to listening to things, but I also want to have kind of a theme. Uh, however. Uh, the common theme in most of these are they're going back to uh, a little bit earlier in, in July. And I have so many things in August and now September that have come out that I want to get to. 
But these are going back to some of the releases uh, from July. And then the uh, other theme, two other kind of things that tie them together are that they are all uh, European musicians. And we've highlighted mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, European uh, jazz uh, before. We've done a lot of uh, Italian, French, uh, Scandinavian jazz, uh, which I'm really interested to find out what's going on uh, internationally in jazz uh, there. But then also uh, these uh, recordings, uh, at least two of them, uh, have uh, a little bit different instrumentation, which is always interesting too. Uh, we're going to have some piano here. We always get a lot of piano, sax uh, kind of releases, but uh, we've got something a little bit different, uh, which I think is always nice uh, to look at too, uh, to get some of the other instruments that we don't always think of as, uh, you know, the focus of jazz, you know, to uh, listen to a little bit more closely. And uh, so... Uh, we've got a European and a varied instrumentation theme uh, going on this week. Uh, and we'll get these uh, done in this episode. And then from next week, I'm going to look at my categories. We're going to have <laughs> a little bit more probably American heavy things, but uh, getting into things that came out in August and September. Here we're going to go back to July for a few of these releases. And the first one is actually uh, recommended by my bandmate and follower on Podbean of our uh, podcast, Rob, who uh, told me about this band, uh, who actually uh, performed here in uh, Kyoto. The uh, band performed uh, here in Kyoto. Yeah, yeah, at yeah, the Doshisha University, a kind of concert series. I went to see uh, one of the uh, uh, performances, not this group. Unfortunately, I missed them, but... Uh, I, I really wish I had have uh, been able to see this group because uh, this is a really interesting uh, combination here. Uh, the album is called uh, Fractal Beauty, and it's on hmm. Skip Records. And um, we've got three musicians featured here. Uh, probably the central figure is uh, Klaus Peyer, an uh, accordionist yeah. uh, from Austria uh, who... I guess he's sort of a, a jazz-centered musician, but he brings a lot of other influences in here. And uh, then we have the phenomenal uh, woodwind player, uh, Gerald Preinfolk, also Austrian. And uh, he plays uh, bass clarinet, clarinet, and soprano saxophone. And uh, <laughs> what I have to say about him is he's such an amazing uh, woodwind player. You know, soprano sax can be one of the most I'm sorry, sax players, but it's one of the ugliest instruments uh, in the hands of most. <laughs> I think most... sax players know that. Yeah, they, I they mean, see it as a challenge, it, you know, to kind of make it appealing. Yeah, it sounds uh, somewhere between like uh, one nostril uh, blowing into a handkerchief and like a, some sort of bad European compact car, like a Yugo or Renault uh, kind <laughs> of, you know, horn sound. But I have to say, uh, Prenfuck keeps me on my toes because his... Soprano sax tone is so, you know, pure that it's often hard to distinguish between that and his clarinet tone, especially when he's in the upper register. He has that pure of, uh, you know, a mastery of the instrument. Uh, yeah, so uh, some really nice woodwind work here. And I I'm, apologize if I don't get uh, 
the pronunciation right here, but a Croatian uh, cellist, uh, Asha Valchik. Yeah, I can't help uh, you there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's happening. him. And I, I know, uh, looking at um, resumes of uh, Pyre, that uh, he's played with Valchik in various uh, groups as a duo, and then this trio and other uh, formations uh, for more than a decade. So they're uh, long-term uh, music partners. And so we get this interesting uh, trio here on all original compositions. Uh, uh, looking at uh, sort of uh, write-ups of this group, which uh, unfortunately uh, they don't have uh, a lot of press, especially outside of uh, Europe, but uh, some of the German press uh, called it uh, chamber music jazz. And hmm. I had to give a label to something, but then that may be, uh, if you take it in a good sense, uh, a, a nice description of what you uh, get here. If you take all of the technique and a composition that you associate with uh, bringing out the best of instruments from classical chamber music, but then also bring in really high-level uh, compositions and jazz soloing ability, uh, it maybe gives you an idea of what this music sounds like. Uh, and this is a release that uh, sort of captures uh, a real jazz spirit, but also brings in the uh, technique and experience of very well-trained uh, musicians. Uh, so this is a really uh, interesting listen that uh, brings a lot of influences in this unique instrumentation together. So uh, the first track on this uh, release, Fractal Beauty, is uh, by uh, Valchik, the cellist, and it's called Trismo. Uh, it starts with this really great, dark and ominous bass clarinet uh, figure. Bass clarinet is such a cool instrument. Yeah. We don't get to hear I a lot. Yeah, you're gonna get, you're every, gonna get to hear it. it on this album. Uh, it's worth it just for that. Um, yeah. So, so we get I that agree. and a low cello, and then some high accordion tones that set a mood uh, until this driving bass line emerges. Uh, Payer weaves really cool solo lines and then passes it off to Valchik for some wailing solo lines. Uh, on the cello here. Uh, then Prinefolk really conjures, he conjures some serpents with his uh, bass <laughs> clarinet melodies, expecting you know snakes to jump out at you. And the effect of the bass clarinet staccato bass is really cool. Uh, this is a really cool number uh, to start out, uh, sort of these kind of uh, um, modalities uh, that uh, bring some ideas to you. Uh, then we've got uh, number two, a Prinefolk composition called Main Street, uh, this one has a lot of interesting tonal uh, effects on the solo soprano sax opening. Uh, everyone joins in, and the kind of syncopated disorder evokes a busy street. Uh, and ev a more even rhythm develops out of that with a plucked cello bass line for like six measures and then a few measures of stop time. So it sets up this sort of alternating pattern that draws you in. Uh, the sax carries solos along the busy street and then uh, to the accordion and uh, back to the original hectic scene uh, for a bit and a return to the other theme with another kind of hectic ending. So it's kind of a, a fun piece that uh, mm -hmm. takes you down a busy street uh, on a little journey. Uh, number three is a Pyre original called Major Waltz. This one has a pulsing accordion 
and some lovely cello plucking that get the waltzing number started. There's some really nice unison accordion and clarinet, and then uh, later cello and clarinet uh, unison lines. Uh, I really like uh, how uh, Valchik's comfortable with playing the cello like a bass, too. Uh, mm. She's all over this her instrument in any style that it calls for, and the versatility really suits uh, the music. So it's not quite a double bass, but she can cover that bass part uh, when the piece covers calls for it. And so that's really cool. Uh, and Primefuck plays some really great wailing clarinet lines in his solo near the end on this. Uh, the fourth track, uh, Valchik Into the Spring, uh, her original composition. The, uh, and here, uh, Pyre switches to uh, Bandonian, uh, you know, S- South American accordion. You know, so you get a little different uh, style here. It's very rubato introduction, sets a quiet mood. Uh, the pretty cello line comes in with a melody backed by a clarinet uh, accompaniment. Then it sort of comes into a faster beat that gets established by the uh, pulsing uh, Bandanonian here, and then Valchik solos on the cello. Uh, she then switches to a kind of pulsing and slapping bass while the clarinet solos, and then the clarinet restates the melody. We get back to some rubato cello uh, for a close. A really nice... Um, kind of a moody piece here. Uh, five, uh, a prime folk original called Three Views. And we start with a real low accordion and cello tone, mysterious start. And then we get more bass clarinet coming in with very careful lines over these riding, rising tide of tones. Then a beat develops with pulsing cello and accordion and some more bass clarinet chaos kind of comes out of that. Things quiet down and there's some bending pitches uh, before the bass clarinet starts this really cool riff and the cello and accordion solo over that with long backing lines before the ending. Uh, so kind of a piece that has a lot of twists and turns through different moods. Uh, six, another pyre piece called uh, Remember the Tango. So spirited unison lines from the accordion and soprano sax. And then the cello sets this dancing bowed pulse uh, while the accordion swells behind that. Some really lovely bent notes and tones on the soprano sax here with in the solo. And uh, here you get to see, like, this guy has amazing soprano sax tone. You're not going to hear that instrument sound this uh, nice. And what a passionate ending. Uh, this one's a real highlight of the album. Yeah. Then we get the... Uh, Title track on track seven, uh, uh, Valchik original uh, Fractal Beauty. It's a really haunting cello opening. becomes uh, in- more interesting rhythmically. And then it's joined uh, by some unison accordion. And after that, uh, soprano sax. And uh, another really lovely toned soprano sax solo. Uh, track eight, Not Lars by Prime Folk. Uh, we get clarinet and low register cello that introduce the slow melody. It's joined by some soft accordion backing. And around the midpoint, uh, fluid high reaching clarinet solo. And despite the pretty melody, there's some really interesting uh, tension raising chromatics in the cello uh, where the line just raises by a a semitone and then goes back down that sort of uh, create some angst in the piece there. 
number nine is Mosaic by Pyre. And this has got some chasing rhythmic lines that are traded off by each player. And then some come in unison. And there's a kind of slow five-beat section that's headed by the sax that develops. And the mood changes. The cello really conjures some, like, dreadful tones here that lead <laughs> into some lyrical bowing. And then the accordion sets a new tempo for some unison lines with the cello and bass clarinet. And then there's some really more of that cool uh, bass clarinet staccato line thing. Does like the yeah. his tongue creates this whole kind of reverb uh, thing, uh, and then the the cello conjures some more kind of uh, interesting tones here while the accordion solos. Uh, so you right. get a sense of the palette of sounds they can do on this mosaic uh, here. Uh, number ten, another prime folk. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Jogama. Jogama. Let me take a look here. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how anyway, this file up. It, uh, this has a, a lilting low cello melody that waltzes over the accordion, and the bass clarinet uh, takes over for a solo, and then uh, more accordion, and uh, really nice warm cello tones right to the end. So uh, and it kind of highlights uh, the tonal beauty of her cello playing. Uh, track 11, another uh, Klaus Pyre original, Just Wonderful. Mm. And he's back on the uh, Bandoneon here. And uh, it's a real slow showcase for the instrument from the beginning. It picks up midway with some clarinet and cello over some intense rhythms that uh, drive to a dynamic ending. So nice piece. Uh, 12, another Valchik original, Gaius Prayer. And this is, say haunting slow cello melody over the accordion and then the clarinet takes over the melody over another uh, plucked cello bass section and then the accordion takes a solo as well before the cello comes back for some more haunting tones hmm. so it's a really unique uh, instrumentation of this group we get intriguing compositions uh, nice arrangements highlighting the abilities of uh, each musician and what they can do with their instruments. And on top of that, some really high-level uh, soloing, uh, both in terms of technique and also kind of artistic direction, uh, considering the themes of each piece. So, yeah, if you're looking for something that's still jazzy, but... Hmm kind of crosses into the kind of chamber music thing with unique uh, instrumentation. Uh, these are some wonderful musicians uh, who bring lots of influences in there and have, you know, gobs of technique. And the recording is really clear. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, yeah, great recording. Um, also, anything with a bass reed instrument on it is going to oh, yeah. attract my <laughs> yeah. attention. I want to say a little bit more about the accordion, which I enjoyed a lot. The There are no drums on this album, so the accordion is really setting the rhythm with its kind of yeah. like uh, phrasing. And I, I found that he he's actually really good at it, so that it really made it work for me. Usually it's that kind of this sort of thing puts me off. As the record went on, I really started to warm to it and really enjoyed it a lot. I like the um, you know the variety of sounds you were getting, not just the bass clarinet, like you said, the the soprano and the different sounds that the cello was able to make. The accordion was the anchor all the way through, and I really enjoyed 
listening to the accordion. It's not an instrument we hear enough of unless you happen to be on the streets of Paris walking around somewhere and some guy's trying to collect money from you for his admittedly good playing. But uh, yeah, you know. But it's nice to hear it in a professional context on an album like this. And so I, I really enjoyed this this as sort of something that's different, just a little bit outside the mainstream. You certainly don't think of it as, you know, jazzy, right? Jazzy. Uh, jazz accordion, yeah. no. Boy, that word jazz is so abused, isn't it? It is, yeah. You know, yeah. like in dance, they have jazz hands. Oh. What does that have to do with jazz? Where did that come from? Where did that expression come from? Yeah, it's a shame because um, we should hear more kind of accordion. We should hear more accordion, yeah. And, um, I mean, it does get introduced in, you know, sort of South American uh, this There's sort of a romantic, almost carefree feeling to it, you know. I rather like that. It manages both at the same time. It sets a romantic mood. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's not weighty, you know, so it kind of, it's, it's it, yeah. makes, it puts you in a good feeling place, I think. And, and I think the sort of, pulsing quality of you know the squeeze yeah of the in and the sort of uniqueness you can get of the both directions on the instrument give it mm -hmm. a lot of you know possibilities that you, you don't have with a wind instrument or with you know a, a normal keyboard instrument and so it it can sort of create a different ambiance that uh, both can be sustained or percussive uh, in a piece and that's sort of a unique appeal that it can add uh, to something um, and so yeah, this is a unique combination of instruments but yet they've figured out how to maximize the appeal of not just the, those instruments but what each individual musician is able to create on those uh, and this probably won't get heard by enough you know, people around the world, most of the press on it is all in German. And I had to look at it and uh, you know, kind of translate it and figure it out. But uh, yeah, definitely take a listen to this for something high level and, uh, you know, unique. Uh, that's both yeah, jazz. Let's spread the word around the English-speaking world. Jazz, yeah, so um, definitely if they come back to uh, Kyoto, I will go and see them. Yeah, you've given away where the... Mountain Lair is now. Oh, man. Kept oh, wow. it a secret for 29 episodes. 29 episodes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> At least it's not Tokyo. That's okay. All right. right. Well, well we're, we're definitely not Tokyo. Yeah. Continuing on uh, in the European jazz release vein, uh, we've got an up-and-coming, it another Italian pianist. Yeah. We've done that before. We'll keep doing that. Uh this is Alessandro Lanzoni. Nice name. Yeah. And, it's a very musical uh, name. His uh, newest release, Mirage. And this is actually, we've got two releases on this label uh, Fresh Sound, New Talent. And uh, Lanzoni got the award for uh, Top Jazz in 2013 as Best New Talent of the Year, which is uh, decided by the uh, most qualified Italian journalists on behalf of the Musica Jazz magazine. And uh, so he's been around for a, a little while now as a recognized talent uh, in the Italian jazz scene. And his uh, training as a musician started developing in various directions. He did classical studies 
leading to a diploma of piano, which he got in 2012 uh, from the uh, Cherubini of Florence Conservatory. And uh, after that, he did jazz studies, uh, both in uh, the summer courses of Siena Jazz and at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And uh, from there, he's played uh, a lot of uh, Italian jazz music festivals. Uh, also, he's got a variety of talents and uh, versatility. He also took up the study of cello and composition, which he got uh, a specialist degree in composition and jazz arrangement for from the Conservatory of Florence. So he does have a um, kind of wide-ranging talent in music. And uh, from a very young age, uh, he was featured in uh, some Italian music festivals, Umbria Jazz, Ravello Festival, Roma Casa del Jazz, and uh, various other uh, festivals as a performer. And uh, so, uh, in addition to that, he's played as a sideman on uh, a lot of other projects, uh, including uh, one of my favorites, uh, the Italian trumpeter Fabrizio Bosso, mm. uh, other performers, uh, Gianni Basso, uh, lots of other players uh, that he's played with. But uh, here he's with uh, his own uh, trio, uh, also featuring uh, Thomas Morgan on bass and uh, Eric McPherson on drums. And uh, so we've got uh, here a program of uh, originals and some uh, other uh, jazz musician originals and uh, one standard uh, so interesting program here i just uh, want to mention before yeah. you go uh, his trio eric mcpherson and thomas morgan these are two guys that i actually know a lot better than i know him so that's it's quite right. a uh, the lineup he's got there he's got some all-stars in, the, yeah, in his trio he, and yet he's the leader he's bursting out into a more international uh, scene from the Italian right. i scene. think thomas morgan plays with bill frizzell a lot is that right yeah i think so yeah Yep. And Eric McPherson, I know too. I'm kind of not getting where I get him from yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a search here. Hold on. Yeah, and I think uh, these players uh, draw out and uh, we can get a, an idea for his uh, musical personality from this release. Hmm. Um, so we start out with uh, When Lights Are Low, uh, an often covered tune by Benny Carter. And uh, this one starts out to a nice swing on uh, this tune, which you've, you're a jazz fan, you've probably heard um, many people play. Uh, towards the end of the melody and into his solo, Lanzoni shows some really interesting uh, kind of uh, penchant for harmonizations and really dense chords. Uh, he really likes to layer uh, his chords thickly, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting um, characteristic of his playing. At the same time, he has a really nice lilting touch in his right hand that balances out those thick chords. And uh, he also does leave a lot of space between his uh, lines and phrases so he can digest what he's just done, which is always a nice characteristic and uh, kind of mature quality of soloing. He does insert some more dissonant chords uh, in his solo here, before uh, Morgan takes over for a while uh, with a rather relaxed bass solo. And then Lanzoni returns for some more playful adventurousness when he brings the melody back. 
Uh, you get the feeling right from the start on this track that he's a spontaneous player, and uh, he, you know, he. I think he doesn't plan things out so much, uh, but he likes to uh, do what's going to sound cool or what he feels in the moment. Uh, I which thought, is, yeah, I actually thought this was the standout track on the album. By the way, when yeah, the lights are low, really cool. It just it came in really uh, positively and bright, and I just mm. you know. Yeah, with with some unexpected things. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, John Coltrane's moment moments notice, um, which has a story behind it. I won't go into it, but uh, jazz fans will know uh, how he sprung that on people in the studio. Uh, here, uh, the solo piano has uh, Lanzoni darting around the changes uh, before the bass and drum kick in, at kind of a driving tempo. And Lanzoni shows a really agile right hand over his choppy left hand chords, and he builds up his solo, uh, balancing out dissonance and uh, nice melodies too. And he drives it uh, all the way to the end uh, with some uh, flourish here. Uh, so uh, nice to see this old uh, Coltrane piece uh, performed here. And then we've got uh, a few originals lined up here. Uh, number three. Uh, a Pretty Hunt, and this is credited to the, all the players in the trio, so I guess they worked this out together. Uh, it's a rubato original ballad with some pretty chords. Uh, we get some bass fills and soft tom-tom work by McPherson uh, that fill out the spaces nicely, and it uh, quiets uh, toward the end. It's sort of a, you know, a one-arc piece that doesn't trade off solos. So they sort of just build this up together, always uh, sort of featuring the piano uh, as the centerpiece. And I, I like this kind of playing uh, as just a whole tune rather than trading off solos, uh, you know, for each track uh, as sort of, you know, an exercise. Uh, so they, they seem to have worked this out together, just featuring the piano. So I thought it was a, uh, a nice original piece. It, it's uh, really pretty, especially the the gentle chords at the beginning were nice. Yeah. One point about this, I could swear I heard like that song, the song Jada. It's a really old jazz uh -huh. song from you know Jada, Jada, Jing, Jing, Jing. I think I could I swear I heard little fragments of that in the uh, in the chords. It's kind like, of evocative of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I, it does have a lot of spaces that sort of fill out. Uh, with mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, it's is yeah. I guess all everything sounds like something, right? <laughs> so, well, yeah, but yeah. I, it's I don't know. I, I heard that. Like, oh, this kind of this. this mm -hmm. He's definitely thinking of something. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it was Georgia mm -hmm. on my mind. I was thinking of two. You thought Georgia on my mind? I, I heard but, Jada. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Then um, it builds into uh, number four, uh, Tornado. It's another uh, original track credited to all three of the musicians. This one's an adventurous exchange between piano and bass phrases uh, that gradually builds into a steady rhythm. Uh, here he gets to explore a lot of dissonant sounds. And then he has this real fun with a Latin vamp, uh, keeping those harmonic tensions. So this something you hear in Latin music but not with these harmonies. Uh, <laughs> so he uses uh, those uh, unique harmonies with that uh, rhythm for a little bit of fun. Uh, and then he 
uh, later explores some sort of polyrhythmic ideas uh, over uh, McPherson's beat. So there's a lot of things going on in this tune, uh, both harmonically and rhythmically. Uh, the bass gives us an alternating kind of syncopated line uh, to the ending. And uh, you can tell by now uh, that Lanzoni enjoys this type of freedom and contrast uh, and he can make something interesting inside of it. So I don't think he, he wants to play in just sort of, uh, uh, let's do uh, jazz standards or uh, something. Uh, he, he likes to have a structure, but with an amount of freedom in it. And he trusts himself uh, to sort of uh, land on his feet uh, in that kind of thing. And I, I, I like that uh, about him. But yet the album still has some more surprises uh, coming up. Uh, track five, uh, Hyperbole. This is his own original um, composition. This is a slow ballad that starts with piano and bass and only the faintest drum brushing from McPherson. Uh, it's barely there. It's a nice balance of big blocky chords uh, and then some cascading right-hand lines uh, before an unhurried bass solo. There's a lot of space to breathe in this sparse piece very dense final chords. Uh, this is something else. Uh, I like that he's able to leave you know, big gaps and places to breathe. Um, it is music, and this one, sort of in contrast to the other pieces. Uh, I kind of like that. Uh, number six, another one of his uh, original compositions, uh, Mirage. And this one is a samba-beaded original uh, again, Lanzoni balances kind of wistful right-hand phrases with big, fully-voiced chords. When he has a chance, he will, you know, fill his chords out, you know, to be really lush harmonizations. The end of the song structure has uh, kind of this cool intervallic riff. Uh, it's a really cool hook, and so they really... <laughs> they're not going to waste that in this song. So it comes in the melody, comes at the end of the piano solo, comes at the bass solo, and then at the ending of the song. So you get to hear that. Uh, it gives you something to hang on to uh, with the improvisations. Uh, and it's kind of a cool feature of the song. Uh, he has like a the... really weighty, like heavy tone in this style. Yeah, like he plays yeah. really loudly. Yeah. I noticed. And that, and that riff is really cool. It pulls you back. Yeah. Um, Number seven, um, this one, <laughs> this one is uh, way out there. Yeah, um, this is called "Call Me Now," and this one is credited to uh, all three players. At the beginning, you'll wonder if the numbers has started. You have to turn up the volume a lot, and then uh, you're going to hear this kind of faint sound, which I think is piano string strumming. It sounds like he's strumming with yeah. his fingernails inside the strumming piano, strumming inside the piano, yeah. and then like rubbing one string up and down for this sort of ingratiating uh, tone. Uh, and then if you crank up the volume to hear that, then you'll have to turn it down when the bass comes in. <laughs> it comes yeah. in with for this kind Fortunately, of, I had headphones on for this one, so I had yeah. it, I could hear it the faintly far away. And, and the like bass that. comes in with, uh, I called it a sneaking patrol. It's sort <laughs> of like wily coyote kind of sneaking around the scene. Um, and then the drums come in. For some more mystery, there's some kind of huge dissonant piano clusters. And then, I don't know, that's about it. So I'm not yeah. really sure what they're going for here, if it's yeah. anything greater than that. But I didn't 
like pull anything more out of it. So yeah, some cool harmonics emerged from the piano during this, but yeah, this was kind of shapeless. I thought it kind of yeah. didn't really. Um, well, call me now. I wonder what what he's uh, trying to say with that title. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure, um, mm. but uh, definitely something different. Um, and then uh, the next tune, nobody else but me, the standard uh, Jerome Kern tune. Uh, this one comes right out of the gate with a nice bouncing swing start. Uh, Lanzoni works in some two-handed chorded rhythmic lines in between his swinging phrases. And uh, then he lets out a nice grunt. <laughs> yeah. At this point, from this point of the album on, there's a lot of um, vocalizing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, from the musician. I'm wondering about that as well. Yeah. I wonder if the programming was decided on where the vocalizing came in or not. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. But Kind of um, like uh, Glenn Gould at the piano or... Um, yeah. You actually hear a lot of this on old jazz albums as well. So Yeah, the grunt comes out uh, before the bass takes a nice bouncy solo and the drums get a spot too uh and there's some nice punchy rhythms at the end and yet still a few surprises after that so uh i like how uh, a lot of times in this album and you think you're coming to the end but there's still some surprises in how he's going to wrap things up so he keeps Mm. you on your toes to the end and then another big surprise uh the last tune uh Mm. coda which also is credited to all the musicians uh, this is not a, you know, a jazz improvised piece. This is a very uh, composed piece that uh, is based over very slow, sustained chords with uh, a, a very uh, processed kind of uh, right. Process is the word I used wrote here. Uh, over sustained chords, and it's really a feature for uh, bowed bass, um, which is done really. Uh, nicely and features the bass, but it's really a different character uh, uh, in the sense of a coda, a different ending for the album, um, just showing something different in the style, but it really takes you to a a different place uh, here. Mm. Um, So um, I think this is my first listening to uh, Lanzoni myself, but he shows an adventurous style kind of comfort with working with different structures, which I liked. Uh, on this program, we've got one standard, two other jazz artist originals, and then we get you know, two rather unusual tunes. Uh, one is orth- unorthodox and then one quite peaceful in addition to the other original works. Uh, I found Lanzoni's style is interesting. Uh, his dense harmonies uh, stick out to me, something that's as something that's essential to his style. Um, but he seems to like a kind of unpredictability and looseness in the structure that he can draw kind of spontaneous things out of. Now, I found his playing uh, very competent and interesting, uh, kind of has this uh, tension sprung ready to release when he's inspired at the right moment. And so I'm interested to hear uh, more of what he does next. Yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more of this pianist too. But I have to say, this this album, there were some real high points on it. I really liked the first track a lot, but the that adventurousness in some of the tracks kind of put me off a bit. If okay. I'm going to be really honest, like uh, the coda, I kind of yeah, you know, I, I know it didn't feel like it it belonged there. Um, there was also you know we talked about um, call me now. It, it, 
I, I kind of felt like I didn't know where it was going, which is probably what he wants. But and I guess like I had heard this after the next recording we went to hear, so I think I was kind of in this really good feeling mo- mood. He's uh, he he's put together a a a program that kind of goes into a, like some yeah darkish places, let's say, or heavy places, let's right. say. All right. Um. So you know, it's he's he's a, he's a really good player. I just thought this was a bit of a mixed bag. I, you know, it was. You know, I'd like to hear more from him, though. I'd like to hear what what else he's going to yeah, do. I agree. That's uh, what thematically, I'll say it. it's a bit of a, a kind of a run and fetch it kind of thing. Um, right. It doesn't hang quite together. I mean, for my first impression, it gave me, you know, a variety of things to see what yeah. he can do. But uh, like I say, the call me now and then coda are sort of they're out there. Uh, right. So you got to run out and then come back. Uh, you, you know what I but, thought um, of? I think was it last week or two weeks ago that we heard the one by that pianist with? Um, he had that piece, uh, you know, Office Politics One Hundred and One. I forget what the, oh, the that was called. Trumpeter. What was that? Yeah, yeah, Rodriguez. What was it? Yeah, yeah. Those two should get together. Him and uh, Slanzoni. <laughs> but <laughs> they make be a dangerous music. Yeah, <laughs> be that could be dangerous. dangerous music. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. If I ever meet both of them, I'm going to say, hey, you know, I could try to get them together and see what happens. Yeah. You know, cause the end of jazz or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you can go in different directions, uh, but uh, especially when it's your first impression of a player, uh, sometimes, you know, we're wondering, okay, where were they going uh, on this one? Uh, but anyway, yeah, let's hear more from uh, Lanzoni. There seems to be... Uh, a nice crop of young Italian jazz pianists with original ideas. We've heard a few of them on our podcast here. And, uh, yeah. Uh, All right. Hear what they do next. And then, uh, staying in the European theme and jumping to another instrument we don't hear enough of. Uh, But here, we're going to hear it in a really interesting way. We're going to hear a lot of it, too. (laughs) Countdown. Yeah. On the same label, Fresh Sound, New Talent, by the French vibraphonist Simon Moulier. Moulier, yeah. Moulier. And uh, mm. here he is on vibraphone on his sophomore release. Uh, second one, I think the last one came out even last year. And uh, his uh, compatriots on bass, Luca Alemano on uh, bass and then on drums uh, a Korean drummer Jung Kook Kim Uh, Hmm. and so this is a really tasty trio here Um, the the notes and press releases uh, emphasize uh, timekeeping and rhythmic features as being uh, integral part of this release with momentum and I I picked that up on uh, this album Um, and I guess his uh, fr- previous album, which came out just last year, which I didn't hear, uh, was a larger ensemble setting. So we've got just trio here. Uh, and I'm glad I got to hear this uh, one first. And uh, so this one focuses on jazz standards or other uh, well-known pieces by jazz musicians. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to dig into here. Uh, so we start... Yeah with uh, the title track, Countdown, which all jazz uh, fans will know uh, as a John Coltrane composition from uh, Giant Steps. Uh, On this uh, version, uh, we're going to get 
uh, a new intro instead of the original drum uh, solo and then sax opening over the drums at this wicked high pace. Uh, here, it's a little bit different in the intro, a little bit more uh, laid back tempo, but once the uh, chords come in, you're going to recognize uh, the flow of this piece. Uh, Muria shows uh, impressive technique and creativity negotiating the chord changes here. Uh, and you also pick up that he likes to vocalize while he plays. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, that's right, he does. I heard he, this in headphones and he does yeah, this a lot. And it comes yeah. out uh, through this whole album. Uh, it's a rather short track at just over three and a half minutes. Uh, you're also going to get a taste of the really tasty drum fills by Kim here. Mm -hmm. He's a really tight and tasty drummer uh, through this whole album. And that shows yeah. up right in the first track. Speaking of the vocalizing, it kind of sounds to me like Mulya, you almost get the feeling that you can almost hear like he's putting his whole being into his playing. You know, he's he's really a virtuosic player. There's a lot oh, yeah. of speed and all kinds of incredible um, yeah. technique on display. And you feel like he's using his, his body to such a, like a degree. Yep. That uh, you know the the sounds just have to come out of his mouth too, just to <laughs> to, yeah. to make that entire effort. I I kind of made fun of this sort of thing in in extreme music, my novel. You know, with yeah. um, you know, try try to get to the exact extreme of what the human body can do, sort of thing. But I, I it was it's not a criticism here. I really enjoyed this. But this guy, yeah. man, he's really something. I remember yeah. we had um, when I was in college, we had a drummer who was always playing. You know, he he kind of played over everything and we used to make fun of him by saying we, we'd have him like you know playing and you know we imagined him yelling out help I need more drums to play you know he didn't have enough drums I almost felt like um Moulier is kind of like that he needs more bars yeah. on the vibraphone because he needs more things to play <laughs> well yeah um he's de this is definitely very busy not player. like um yeah. not yeah. like um you know, chimes of lullaby to put you to sleep. Yeah, uh, absolutely not. And yeah. checking him out on YouTube, he's also got like, um, you know, some of the things he's got his vibraphone and he's got his uh, wooden like xylophone and he's yeah. got effects like wah, wah, auto wah pedals on some yeah. stuff. So like, yeah, he's a very intense play <laughs> in players. He's bursting with uh, energy uh, which comes out through this release yeah. as his style. All, all so, the way through. It was actually yeah. really exhausting to listen yeah. to. Although yeah. I loved it. I thought this yeah, was yeah, a really great cool. album. I liked it a lot. It was very cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he really inspired at the end though. <laughs> he infuses this album uh, with his energy. Uh, so the second track is uh, Work uh, Thelonious Monk Tune and uh, this one right from the start gets an infectious and hypnotic rhythm on the vibes uh, that's aided uh, with a nice groove through the bass. He gets some monk spirit uh, with some tight mallet work. And then right about four and a half minutes into the tune, he develops this mesmerizing figure. It's just like, you know, this repeated thing that will put you in a trance. And that goes on until he gets a clean break and it snaps you out of it. And then... Um, going into something new. Uh, there's a nice rolling drum figure under all of it here, always getting a really cool groove. Uh, so it's kind of a real nice interpretation of this uh, monk work. Uh, then we switch gears into uh, a standard, the old Cole Porter, I Concentrate on You, but it gets a little bit different treatment with a samba beat here. Yeah. Uh, he plays the melody really straight. Uh, however, 
he is able to add a lot of tasty fills around that as he lets the notes hang, which you can get this nice sustain on the uh, vibraphone. Uh, while that melody is hanging, he'll be filling in all of these little tasty things around it. And so he that, it's one of his uh, abilities uh, to uh, get... In, and with his articulation, you'll always hear the melody when he's playing these tunes, and then he'll be filling in with all these little counterpoint lines around that. And it's really cool. Uh, he can get a really like jazz piano type approach when he wants, which he shows off on these well-known standards and uh, gives due diligence to the uh, sort of presentation of the melodies. Uh, his solo here also is very melodic, and then he stitches the lines together with really nice voice leading uh you know so uh although he may take some ar adventurous harmonic steps when he connects the phrases they're all really logically uh based with nice voice leading which i liked uh number four is uh the mingus tune goodbye pork pie hat and uh here we get a nice slow and very dirty groove uh some bluesy lines and interesting rhythms that he develops over uh, the basics here and a really nice bass solo too. Uh, number five, uh, the uh, kind of jazz standard tune, Nature Boy. Uh, but this one is done in a little different way. Uh, it's developed over a groove, which has a nice kind of uh, descending bass glissando. Yeah. He, he had this really sticky sound too yeah. like to yeah. it too it's really kind of cool in this like you have to wash your hands after listening to this yeah. one but wash it's, your hands it's cool and groovy uh this this tune has really nice bass and drum work uh right. and a killer bass solo yeah uh, i wrote that too yeah. i gotta get <laughs> a big solo so it's this was yeah. great uh, and Moyer jumps from uh, hypnotic backing over the bass solo to his own intense solo. And in the mallets, you can just see like little balls flying everywhere uh, on this one. <laughs> yeah, this is a, another highlight uh, here. Uh, and they return to the melody for a bit, but they jam out on the end. So really cool arrangement. Uh, number six, uh, the uh, familiar Bill Evans tune, Turn Out the Stars. Uh, if, if you like Bill Evans, you've probably heard this tune many times this is a good straight ahead swinging treatment of this tune another melodic bass solo uh, added here as well so a nice little tribute to uh, Bill Evans's own composition uh, number seven uh, Jerome Kern the song is you and uh, this one's got a, a nice arrangement the intro is uh, very short and bluesy but when the tune comes in it's uh, given a samba beat so a little bit uh, different from what usually here they add some nice syncopated ends to the phrases of the melody do 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 kind of uh thing that's not in the original composition so that makes it uh, unique and uh Moya's solo here is very melodic uh and he starts with some phrases that he can't help but sing along to <laughs> yeah, it's and like, neither can we no yeah, I'm just kidding the, the melody the, the melody of this tune you know da 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 is great but in his solo he has his own new melody and he's like really like he should be proud of it because it sounds great but then he sings with that and then um they get a great vamp uh going before the bridge of the tune comes in after the the solo so yeah this is another great um arrangement but his enthusiasm is just like 
you know, it forward comes through. Yeah. yeah. I want to mention something that's been happening throughout the album, too, that I noticed on this track, too. He gets this fantastic, like, staccato sound on the vibraphone. Mm-hmm. It's not something I'm used to hearing. Most vibraphonists want yeah. the note to ring because it, it'll go right. on for a long, long time. It's got those motors that sort of, um, you know, keep the sustain going. Yeah. Yet he'll... And you can hear he's like stopping the note with his hand, sort of like he'll hit the bar and he'll kind of, and it's just a fantastic sound. You just don't hear that so often. Yeah. I was really intrigued by that. He does it on quite a few tracks, but yep. very noticeable here. Yeah, he does that. What I also notice is like um, he does sometimes, he does like a glissando, but with a muted, I don't know if he's using his hand or something with the pedal, but and he'll get this hmm. like muted glissando, like and it, it's almost like a blip, and you're like, "What?" And but yeah, then he's off to something that. else. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's got a lot of stylistic things uh, that are. He's, yeah, he's pretty. Nice. He's very virtuosic. Yeah, very, great yeah. technique. Yeah. Um, the next track, uh, we go a little Brazilian here, uh, Bejo, uh, Bejo Partido, Partido yes, Bejo. Broken yeah. Kiss. By uh, Tony Horta. Uh, you may know this tune from uh, Milton Nascimento and other uh, Brazilian artists. So uh, this one is uh, really kind of uh, lush chords and halting bass line intro into the uh, kind of smooth uh, beginning to this Brazilian classic. Uh, past midway th- through the tune, though, the vibes and bass get a, a riff together and the drums come back on like a busier kind of doubled up rhythm so it changes character midway through which is kind of cool uh then we shift gears again uh completely on uh, next track uh with the uh tad dameron tune a uh, hot house uh so this one starts out with uh drum fills over the syncopated uh intro riff and then uh, Muya shows off his bop chops on this one, racing over the changes. So he's really off to uh, the um, bebop steeplechase here. Uh, mm-hmm. Things are really flying along on this one, but man, do they keep the rhythm locked tight as a trio? And Kim gets to do some more tasty drum work uh, over the riff uh, part from the beginning again. So this shows their height. tightness and uh, some bop chops here. Yeah, some high-speed rhythmic trickery, too, I yep. I wrote here. The, sp- and, I, the, uh, ro- the walking bass is more like a sprinting bass, actually. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> we're really, really out of the gate <laughs> on this one. Yeah. And uh, finally, uh, we end up with another Monk tune, uh, Ask Me Now. And uh, this one's different in character. We get a loping swing that's set by the bass uh, for the vibe melody. And the drums just sit this one out, uh, which is cool. Because Mulier and, and uh, Alemano uh, have uh, really uh, grooved into this swing here. And they both get uh, melodic swinging solos. And uh, we don't miss the drums uh, because everything is super rhythmic. Uh, but it also lets the uh, sustain on the vibes ring out a little bit more without the uh, drums filling up that sound. And so it's a, yeah, a little nice change of pace to close out the set. Uh, so in some... Uh, a satisfying set of songs with really good arrangements, you know, some different rhythms and uh, intros, little um, kind of riffs and things that uh, are different from the original or standard arrangement of tunes. The trio is very tight, tasty drumming and bass playing, 
behind the vibraphone. Uh, Mouillet is bursting with energy and ideas, uh, almost too much for, for one album, actually. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to get uh, Grandpa's sleepy vibraphone here. Uh, <laughs> no way. Uh, you're going to have a lot of uh, staccato uh, skull uh, beating, malleting in a good way here. Lots of meta- uh, melodic things, uh, cool harmonies. Uh, and we should hear more. Um vibraphone like this and uh so this is only his uh, second album as a leader uh i hope this uh, spurs some more vibraphone talent uh in europe and abroad uh to uh you know do some more interesting jazz things uh there's not a lot you don't hear vibraphone a lot these days but this reminds me that it can well, be just so like cool. the hammond organ it's got to come yeah. back you know yeah they were great vibraphonists when I was younger. In fact, yep. you may have said that thing about Grandpa's vibraphone. I'm trying to imagine my grandfather playing the vibraphone. It just it does, is old it, the picture doesn't it just doesn't add up somehow. It's <laughs> yeah, like trying to know. imagine. It's like trying to imagine Santa Claus scuba diving or something. Yeah, yeah. It's just a picture I can't quite uh, conjure up. Yeah. Well, what was know. it we heard? Uh, we had vibes back always. Wolfgang Lockerschmidt. I think. Oh yeah. Name. Yeah, the but guy that was who before the podcast, with, uh, right? That was uh, we didn't talk about this in the podcast, did we? Yeah, we did. We did because um, oh, we did. Yeah, um, it was a name that um, I mean, there's a lot of jazz uh, vibraphonists uh, that. Uh, oh yeah, we did do we, it. I remember. Yeah, that yeah. Was a long, it was, it was he was the one who had been in March or April. Yeah, he was the one who had yeah. uh, become known in the late '70s for playing with Chet Baker. But, right. Uh, he okay, just I remember. Yeah, his new so one. Was yeah, that. yeah. So okay. that was our only other vibraphone feature, I think. Yeah, so. this is a young guy, younger yeah, guy, guy, I so guess. Young and full of youth and vigor. So oh yeah, applauded. He sure is. Yeah, keep he smacking made, those he, uh, mouths. I'm not even. I'm not even playing. Just by listening, he made me exhausted. But it was kind of a a satisfied, exhilarated kind of exhaustion. I really liked this album a lot. Um, I also liked, uh, we didn't talk about the sound. I liked the rich, full sound it got. I was wondering if the vibraphone, it it doesn't distort or anything. It sounds great. But I was wondering how if if the mic was a little too close. I really don't know how vibraphones are mic'd. Is it the yeah. bars or is it by the uh, the tubes at the bottom? I, don't, I really don't know what they do. It's got to be by the but tubes it, because um, yeah. I remember uh, playing in a jazz ensemble, uh, looking at them. You know, they they operate on this uh, you know, to get to sustain. There's a a um, rotating rod mm. with um, you know that uh, flips these uh, discs inside of the. The tubes under right. each thing when you get the the sustain pedal, so I would imagine it has to be the mic has to be somewhere below there. But right. uh, looking at um, uh, Muya's sort of uh, performances on YouTube, he also does use some effects uh, on mm. for some of his performances. He's got like a an auto wah effect uh, that he gets on there, uh, so. I'm not really sure if he has some various types of pickup or um, non-traditional kind of miking or something there, but yeah, I was, yeah the sound he, is good and uh, it's real. It was recorded really close, and yeah. I think at the end of um, uh, tracks nine and ten, I, I was listening in headphones, and I made out this kind of like sort of processed sort of sound going. Yeah, you know, I was kind of wondering what the, what was making that. It must have been one of the effects, huh? Um, you know, listening mm. to those, I think, like I said, he he may use this kind of muted uh, kind of glissando thing where he, he 
drags the mallets across. Uh, mm, it know, might have the, been that, uh, the maybe, bars but it was so faint. That was kind of, I thought yeah, it was just it's like, very faint. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's actually his acoustic uh, effect of doing that. But if you, as I said, if you look at his uh, YouTube videos, you'll see that he does use some kind of uh, effects in his live performances. So I'm not really, not really sure. Um, but, uh, you know, being a young guy, I think uh, he's probably open to uh, modern uh, tonal possibilities with equipment and things, which is all cool. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, Simon, if you if you <laughs> yeah, care to yeah. uh, fill us in on the technical details, uh, drop us a line here. Yeah. Because uh, we'd like to uh, hear more from you in the future. Uh, yeah, this is a cool label. I like the the name of that label, Fresh Sound, New Talent. Uh, yeah, this was probably my favorite, the yeah. most appealing jazz album that I heard this week. Um, although I did like the the first one too, but that was a different vibe to it. It's a you different know, it thing. Kind of yeah. A, yeah, yeah, I like that one too. Um, and of course, in classical, it was the Olaf's and Mozart. That was real. That's oh, a real. Yeah, that's our. That's a, that might be one of the our albums of the year, which we will disclose to you in December. Yeah. Uh, he has top something ten special list. for sure, and uh, yeah. I think we're going to have hopefully many more years of uh, his contributions to ponder. Well, I'm already looking forward to uh, next week. I hope we got some good stuff up there. I've got some uh, some interesting things. We'll see. And, oh, it's going to uh, be a good show. Yeah, next week, and then uh, not not this week, but next week, midweek, we're going to do our take on all the uh, gramophone award winners and nominees and ones we've heard anyway because we're not going to be able to hear them all there's yeah. there too many by the end of the year to, i hope to have heard them all but uh, enough time to uh, pick out the winners yes yeah, so. <laughs> yeah we yeah. i think we can hear all the winners between us so we're trying to yeah. do that yeah well lots of things mm. coming up i've certainly got a backlog you you do too so we're going to get yeah. them uh, packaged up into uh, a good yeah. uh consumable arrangement uh it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes up in the next few weeks yeah all right all right so this has been episode 29 of adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind and thanks for sticking with us to the end uh please do like subscribe on whatever platform you're at. Remember, you can hear all the tunes in one single place on the Adult Music Podcast playlist, which you'll find only on Deezer. Or you can come over to Podbean and see us on our host, where you'll find links to Apple Music and Spotify individually for each uh, release that we discuss this week and every week. And uh, please do uh, give us a rating uh, send a uh, comment to us by email adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be back again next week with six more releases uh, covering jazz and classical music and things that have come out in recent weeks. We'd love to hear from you if you have any comments, but until then, we'll see you again next time. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye.